This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 604 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show, Tier Simak. Now, you might recognize Tyr by his pen name, Charlie Martell. So we discuss a host of topics from the ripple effect of the withdrawal from Afghanistan, his own journey into the Green Berets, the altruistic element of Black Rifle Coffee, and so much more. Before we get to this amazing conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 600 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Tyr Simak. Enjoy. Well, Tier, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Glad to be here. Glad to be here. So I want to start with the icebreaker because I was talking to a mutual friend, Mandy, um, and she reminded me that this had just happened. I think um, Troy Herschel, who I had on the show, excuse me, Troy Warshall, who I had on the show, um, had told me about it as well. 
As an opener, talk to me about Wally, who he was and what just happened this last few days. Wally uh, has, um, he is, uh, he's more of an American as an Afghan than uh, most Americans I know. Um, that's him summed up in one sentence. Uh, Wally was a strike force commander uh, in Afghanistan working with U.S. forces, U.S. Uh, special operations and intelligence forces for years. Um, and he worked with some of the Black Rifle personalities in, in Afghanistan. Uh, several years ago, um, one of our friends saw him at a gas station in Virginia. And it's like, Wally, what are you doing here? And he's like, I'm pumping gas. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite what the what he meant, but so um, the guys in Salt Lake decided that they were going to move him and his family out to Utah and and hire him at Black Rifle. So he's a he's a facilities guy, along with a, a fire team of Afghan commandos that we've kind of scooped up over the years, uh, and they they work they work facilities in in the um, in the Salt Lake headquarters. Um, what's, what's special. Well, there's plenty of special about Wally, but significant about this last week is, uh, Wally, uh, just passed his test and got his U S citizenship. And this has been something he's been trying to do for, uh, over a year. Um, and, uh, he, had, he hadn't really asked for any help. Um, black rifle does pay for English lessons for, for these Afghan commandos. Uh, once a week, they they go and sit in the conference room and and get English lessons. Wally already spoke pretty good English, but he he told me that one of the uh, one of the barriers to U.S. citizenship is all the classes are in English, and it's something I hadn't really taken into consideration before, and something that probably most Americans don't take into consideration. We've got this tradition of you know bring me your tired and et cetera and so forth, but. It's kind of an unspoken, bring me your tired as long as they speak English. You know, it, I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that before. And every one of these guys has, they're here, they're working hard, they're learning English, et cetera, so forth. They've fought for not only their country, but our country. And um, it, it's, it's kind of a shame that the system is set up for them to, to fail. And allow me to go off on a soapbox tangent here, but. I, after traveling the world a little bit, um, I'm kind of of the opinion that uh, our citizenship should be more like uh, Robert Heinlein's uh, Starship Troopers. Or if you'd like the movie, that's, that's fine too. It's a far departure, but I think citizenship needs to be earned rather than a birthright. And it doesn't mean people have less rights. It just means if you're deciding things for our country, then you should have had to put some work into it. doesn't mean you got to join the military. Just serve somehow. You know, AmeriCorps, Peace Corps, whatever. Some sort of selfless service that says, I actually believe in this country and I want to see, I want to be, I want to be a part of what changes take place. And uh, Wally is, is that person. Beautiful. Well, it mar- seems to mirror. I had uh, Johnny Walker on. Do you know who that is? Code uh, great Johnny. Yes, great whiskey, but also uh, an Afghan, excuse me, an Iraqi who was attached to the SEAL teams as uh, initially as an interpreter, ended up becoming more like a James Bond figure by the sound of it. And then they ultimately brought him over and, and he was on the show uh, probably uh, nine months ago now. But 
with him, with, you know, obviously with Wally now, you get to really hear what not only what they've done assisting our troops, but what it was like before, what it was like under these regimes, what um, I had Fahim Fazli on, who's an actor, who's Afghani. He moved over here. He was in um, 12 Strong. Um, mm-hmm. And again, so now you hear, well, you know, what's the the bad side of, of pulling out? But also, you know, when, when taking all these people away from their country, we're taking a lot of their greatest minds out of Afghanistan. So what is that doing? Yeah. You know, so it's such a an interesting perspective to hear as a complete naive civilian who only has Fox and CNN to draw his information, so therefore absolutely fucking nothing, to really <laughs> to really hear from these incredible men and women that actually, you know, were born and bred in these nations. And not only, like I said, representing the people that are still there, but also to tell the story of, of their fellow, you know, fellow men and women they fought alongside and a different perspective of what our men and women on the ground did for their people. Yeah, well... Thank God Wally and his family are out because they were targeted even before uh, we pulled out. They had been, his, his family had been targeted. And um, before the, the pullout, uh, his family that was in Kabul was fairly safe. But uh, of course, that became, that situation degraded quickly. Um, and some of his family that's in the United States went back to Afghanistan to visit. Uh, man, that was a stressful it was a stressful month for him <laughs> because as they were there, things started getting worse. I can imagine. They, nope. they, they got back out, but man. Yeah. So, so what, what are you hearing? And you got Wally obviously very connected. Now we had the shiny object was, you know, the withdrawal of Afghanistan. You know, I deliberately did some like Fahim. I went and, and, and found him and we did another conversation again. I sat down with Jason McCarthy, his uh, wife, Emily. So Jason's a Green Beret. Emily was a CIA case manager. And then Rich um, was a Delta operator from Vietnam to Mogadishu. And so the three of them, the perspective to really talk about what was going on, not only to educate the civilians, but also... I was worried about the mental health of our men and women that served. And that question, you know, what was it for? And of course, at the time, a huge difference was made by the people that were in, you know, whatever town in whatever country. But, um, and then it was lost again. Then we've got, you know, let's go back to masks and vaccines and petrol and Ukraine. And, um, so revisiting that, you know, what have you guys seen? You're so embedded in, in, you know, so many different ways. Whatever, what has it been, six months now in? What are you seeing as far as a domino effect on the Afghani people, but also the, you know, our own service people over here? It's, um, it's difficult for, for our service people. And I'm still serving part time. Um, I'm, I'm a sergeant major in, in 19th Special Forces Group in headquarters. Um, so some of this is, is strange to talk about because for a lot of guys, it was their life. Uh, and for guys like me, we're, we're still in it, you know? Um, and, and that's not to say that, um, anybody that's still serving such as myself, either full or part-time is, um, any more invested than people that did serve and got out. It's just, it's a different mindset because it's, we're just, we're kind of waiting, you know, we can, those of us in uniform, we can plan for what we think is going to happen. Most likely course of action, deadliest course of action, things like that. But at the end of the day, we're, we're more reacting than anything else, which means whoever we're acting to has a, has a big vote in our plans. 
So in terms of Afghanistan, um, I think most service members, certainly myself and, and guys I talked to, it was pretty uh, disheartening. And there was a lot of mixed emotions. There was a lot of guys that um, felt like we should have done this years ago. But most people in uniform that I have talked to about this felt like there should have been some middle ground there in terms of we didn't need to be there in full force, but pulling out altogether. And I need to preface this by saying I am not speaking on behalf of the Department of Defense or any government organization. This is just conversations I had with soldiers. Yeah. (laughs) Conversations I had with soldiers. Most of them feel like uh, giving up, um, giving up Bagram Air Base was a huge strategic mistake. Um, And we probably should have kept that. Uh, Even if we pulled out, even if we shut down combat operations, we probably should have kept Bagram. For its geographic location um, to, to support, continue to support the government of Afghanistan for multitude of reasons. So I don't know one soldier that is at peace with, with the way we pulled out or with the speed that we pulled out. Nobody, nobody, um, nobody has a, a feel good about that. And, um, it, it's, uh, it's hard to focus on now because We've got Russia invading Ukraine, and that's being blasted in our faces uh, on an hourly basis. And anybody that's in uniform now is wondering, where is this going? Am I going to get sent to a NATO country? Or am I going to get sent to Ukraine? Is this going to be World War III? All of these things. And there's a lot of uncertainty there because we're dealing with, we're dealing with uh, a world leader who is nuclear capable that it really makes his own rules. And he has been for a long time. If you remember the first time he invaded Ukraine, at least in our generation, um, 20 was 2014, I believe when uh, Putin invaded Ukraine and president Obama drew a line in the sand, which Putin promptly drove tanks over and we didn't do anything. Not saying we should have, but we probably shouldn't have said, let's draw this line in the sand because that's going to, that's going to stop this guy. We'll show him. There's just a lot of questions and a lot of unknowns. There's a lot of uncertainty um, for for veterans and um, in and out of uniform right now. And once again, I do not speak for the Department of Defense unit or any other government organization. That's okay. I don't sport, speak for any fire department. I just speak for myself. So there we go. <laughs> Um, but with that, a resounding common denominator from, and it's been SEALs, it's been Green Berets, multiple, multiple. It seems like a common theme is the response to 9-11 absolutely should have been going into Afghanistan. It seems like the Green Berets, the kind of force multiplier philosophy seems to have been the one that was, you know, probably the, the core of what we should have done. But every single person said, you know, 18 months, two years, we should have been out again. Now, again, as a an Englishman who moved to America, who became a firefighter, it was nothing to do with the Army. Salvation Army donations is probably as close as I've got. Um, I worry about the warmongering. I, what I've seen is the effect of the pharmaceutical companies and, you know, the the fast food companies and, and the alcohol companies and what they've done to the health of this nation. That's my truth. That's mm-hmm. what I saw every single day. Yeah. Through, through my layman's eyes, what I see is where's the where's the drive to not be at war when so many companies are making so much money 
when we stay, you know, at war. So where's the kind of, as they say, checks and balances to send our men and women out, do their thing, but then bring them back before we have, you know, thousands of coffins from IED explosions and helicopter crashes and all these tragedies we had that I think were post when we should have been there. Well, James, I mean, who needs balances when you have checks? Exactly. It's, it's, a, it's a rule of incentives. I mean, you've got American policy interests. You've, there is humanitarian interest as well. And, you know, there's doing the right thing. But somebody's got to pay for it. Whether with, with blood or dollars, somebody's got to pay for it. And um, I'll admit, Ben, I was, I was pretty hawkish. Uh, after 9-11. Um, and I've, I've remained that way to a point. Um, when I was in the classroom, uh, you know, I just just returned from, from New York where I was doing my paramedic internship with FDNY. And I was in the classroom back at Fort Bragg and we saw the second tower get hit live on television. I turned to the guy next to me and I said, we're going to war. I mean, there's, I knew then we were going to war. Of course, I had to finish school before I got there, but I did end up there right after I graduated, months after I graduated special forces school. Um, and uh, I was, I can't say I was anxious for retribution there, but I knew, I, I felt like I definitely had a clear mission. Uh, and it was to uh, build allies and defeat the enemy. I mean, it was pretty, pretty cut and dried. Um, as things wore on, I think that mission became more convoluted. Um, and we started to lose. A, 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 there just wasn't that build allies, kill the enemy mission. We didn't really have a, an end state that we wanted. We had more of a, I think we had more of a, let's justify our investment. And uh, I think it part of the, the problem with the United States, um, the way we govern ourselves is that, and I may be by myself in this, in this thought process, but we're on a four-year election cycle, which means our entire foreign policy could change every four years. You're looking at a third year, fourth year, if you're really kicking it out in overdrive on actually implementing effective foreign policy because we're, uh, we're one country. There's a country that's receiving that foreign policy that has to, those relations have to be built. They have agreements have to be made, et cetera, so forth. So most incumbents win. So let's just give benefit of the doubt and say, we're on year five or six of an administration when we've got foreign policy. He's not actually working on that foreign policy at that point. He's, he's winding down his administration, right? And if God forbid, it's the the third year. So you've got, let's say you've got a brand new president. He comes in that first year. He's trying to get his cabinet in order. He's trying to lay down his policy and decide what promises he's going to, he's going to follow up on or what policies, what promises were just election fluff, right? That's the first year. Second year, actually doing some stuff. Third year up time to gear up for election. So you're laying down things that are, that are going to be strategic for the next election. Fourth year, campaign trail. So with a brand new president, in our current cycle, 
we have really have one year of effective policy from a president that's not an incumbent. So how that applies to Afghanistan, let's say I, I was in Afghanistan for Bush, Obama, Trump. I miss Biden. I miss Biden. Just barely, because I left Afghanistan in 2018, early 2018. So I just barely missed, I missed Biden. But <clears throat> I was almost there for five presidents. That's a lot of different directions to go. So it's no wonder we didn't have clear strategic, a clear strategic end state, because we're fighting bipartisan stuff. We've got Democrats and Republicans fighting for who's going to control things, and they'll just flip flop ideals over a generation if it means getting the other side. So how does that affect things down the road? It's something we've got to fix here, and I don't know how that gets fixed. Honestly, I, I think there should be term limits. For, I know this wasn't supposed to be a political podcast, but I think there needs to be term limits on Congress so you don't have career politicians. And the when we elect a president, it should probably be for longer than four years. There's downsides to that. If your guy doesn't make it, now you're stuck with the president you didn't like for, for a little bit longer. But the upside is things can actually get done instead of just focusing on campaigning all the time. Yeah. Well, the thing is politics to question the system. You know, and that's something that I do. Like, I'm not left or right. And I, I phrase this very crudely, but right now, you know, don't expect cupcakes from a turd factory. Like, we are set up for <laughs> failure. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's true. Like, I, I yearn for that kind of walk softly, carry a big stick type leader. I think, for example, I've spoken this about a few times. I think Tulsi Gabbard is awesome. I would love to see her in that position. But, you know, when was the last time you saw someone that showed kindness and compassion, that talked about improving the health of our nation, realizing that maybe our education system isn't the best in the world and that we can start affecting that, building community, taking these divisions yeah. away, you know, addressing things that are making our streets dangerous so that we don't have police that look like they're about to go into Iraq, you know, all these areas. But it's not, like you said, that flip-flopping. It's the same exact person, different colored tie. And so it's not politics. It's like... Our whole system, you know, you have to be unethical and you have to be a millionaire to stand a chance in that position, which excludes mm -hmm. 90 God knows what percent of this country. That's not yeah. democracy. That's, um, what's that word I used the other day? Dem Demistocracy, whatever, you know. Demistocracy. Ba yeah, basically. Um, so, yeah, so I think these, you know, when you have a firefighter who's an immigrant and you have, you know, a sergeant major in SF, I think those are important voices to hear. Just have a great conversation like what is working and what is not. Because, yeah, you, I wouldn't have a problem eight years if it was someone who actually was a leader, you know, whether it was JFK or Churchill or whoever, someone who truly got what the nation needed. I don't think anyone have a problem. But when it's – and we heard this all the time – out of 330 million people, we're left with the decision, the lesser of two evils. If that's not a red flag of how broken our system is, I don't know what else you need. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I have to be careful in talking about any presidential administration because of uniform code of military justice, but I do, I do agree that there, there's got to be better choices. And this bipartisan system that's designed more to keep a party in power than it is to lead the nation, I think that is broken. I think that's broken. And I've been a registered independent my entire voting life. So before anybody gets in the comments and makes up some weird title for me, that's that's where I stand. <laughs> it's like a freaking middle of the road guy. 
Jeff Vance Ryder. <laughs> you and your common sense. <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> Somebody's going to watch this and they're going to get in their truck and they're going to yell at their phone for a half an hour. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. It's been disconnected anyway. <laughs> All right. Well, then getting on to your actual timeline, I love these opening conversations and, you know, hearing about Wally, for example. I mean, that to me is immigration. And sadly, immigrant is spat out like some curse word these days, but this nation it's was built got on a immigrants. pejorative connotation to it. Yes. Yeah. And so I love hearing about, you know, Wally and Johnny Walker and all these amazing people that were in countries that we were labeling as enemies. Well, no, they were mm-hmm. countries, you know, <laughs> fighting mean, tyranny in their own nation. That's That's where you were, right? I mean... 1776, 1812. Welcome to America, Jeff. Exactly, exactly. And every every uh, 4th of July, they're like, oh, what's it like? I'm like, what, the, the Great War of England versus England? Yeah, it was a good one. <laughs> All right, well, back to your timeline. So I love to yeah. start at the very beginning. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Sure, I was born uh, at home. Um, outside Portland, Oregon, in some farmland that is no longer farmland. Um, and uh, it's not because my parents were farmers. It's because they were uh, kind of hippies with guns. This is the best way I could describe my, my parents. They just decided I was going to be born at home. Um, my mom was a belly dancer. This sounds a lot like uh, Dr. Evil. I spent summers in, in Bruges. Um <laughs> My mom was a belly dancer and uh, my dad was a, was a carpenter and um, they were young. They split while I was, while I was before I can remember actually. Uh, and uh, my mom went on to be a seamstress in the Portland opera uh, where she met my stepdad, who was a, a set designer. My dad carried on in construction and he's still doing construction this day. He's a, uh, He's overseas building some embassy annex somewhere. Um, more on that because we've had a lot of uh, meetings in other countries over the years. Um, my, uh, my siblings, I'm the oldest. Um, I have a stepsister that's married to a Coast Guard guy somewhere in the Bay Area. I've got a half-sister who married an Air Force guy. And they retired to Louisiana, and um, then there's me. And I've got an adopted brother who's an 11 Bravo. So all the kids are tied somehow to the military, but uh, I'm the first one since my grandpa to actually uh, enlist. Now, your granddad, was that World War II? World War II, yeah. Yeah, let's talk about Grandpa Simak for a minute. Please, because, um, I mean, that's something I talked about just the other day. Like, we lo- we have almost lost our voices. I had an Iwo Jima yeah. um, Marine on the show the other day, Frank White, right, amazing guy. Oh, wow. But that's a rare occasion to speak to, you know, and he was combat wounded as well. But they're, so I mean, you, rarer by exactly. the day. <laughs> so so yeah. now it's their, you know, children and grandchildren that really get to tell that story. So I'd love to hear it. So, um, and I'm I'm really fortunate to have his story because – I didn't know anything about his story um, until he just started gradually telling it to me over the years. Um, and I think it's because he, he would always tell me some little tidbit after I came back from whatever shithole I had been in the last few months. So I think he just felt like he could relate to, I could relate to some of the stuff that he just kept to himself for 50, 60, 70 years um but he uh he enlisted with his parents permission 
um, towards the end of the war, he was 16 years old. He was the youngest of seven brothers and sisters. And all of his older brothers um, were already in service. Um, one older brother was Eisenhower's driver in Europe. Um, and his next older brother was a cook in the Navy who had uh, five different ships sunk underneath him. Oh, wow. It's <laughs> a black yeah. cloud. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the only story that I know about that one, I know about with my Uncle Bill, uh, his next, my, my Grandpa Bob's next older brother, is that uh, the last ship that he was on, I don't know the names of any of these, by the way, but uh, the last ship that he was on, he, he grabbed a five-gallon bucket of ice cream, and that's what uh, the people in his lifeboat lived on. Until they until they were rescued, because it's five gallon bucket of ice cream. So he was I'm not hero. sure how long that was, but can you imagine going overboard? Your ship's going down. You, active combat. I don't know if they were torpedoed or zeroed or what, but just the chaos of naval warfare, and you've got a bucket of ice cream. You'd be a damn hero. <laughs> I'd, be, I'd grab kale. I'd be the enemy, and they'd throw me back <laughs> off. <laughs> so my my grandfather, he. Uh, he told his dad that he wanted to enlist because he figured it was going to go anyway. Uh, he was just going to get a head start on it. So uh, his dad signed his permission slip and he enlisted. He went off to Fort Lee, Virginia to be a quartermaster. And he was going to be, his job was to um, airdrop uh, supplies to the Marines in the Pacific. That's what, that's what his job was going to be. So he went to uh, airborne school. So he, he was a paratrooper. He wasn't signed to the 82nd or anything like that, but he was a paratrooper on jump status with the mission of resupplying Marines in the Pacific. Um, while he was on the boat over to, uh, in the Pacific, um, Japan surrendered. He, he likes to joke, I guess they heard I was coming. <laughs> <laughs> he's, got, he's got a Texas accent because my entire family uh, on his side of the family is, is from Texas. Um, so, uh, he got there and he was in the army of occupation for Japan for 18 months. Um, and it, uh, I think he can relate to Iraq a little bit in that, uh, it wasn't entirely peaceful. Uh, he, he talks highly of the Japanese people. He said they, they really didn't have that much to do with the war, uh, itself, you know, the military did, the civilians didn't, that's, that's the way he looked at it. Um, but he was injured and he was in a coma for two months in a hospital in Japan. Um, he, uh, he hit a landmine and it launched him through the roof of a truck. The can't thank, thank God the roofs were canvas back then. So he got launched through the roof of a truck and, uh, doesn't really remember much of that. But when he, when he woke up and he got out of the hospital, he decided his service was done and he couldn't get back to the States. <laughs> so when he got back to the States, he was uh, discharged at a, at a camp that is no longer there uh, in San Francisco. And uh, he wanted to get back to Texas, but there were no trains, buses, or planes available to go to Texas. They were all full. And his brother, the one with the five gallon bucket of ice cream was, uh, had, had been serving um, at a coastal gun placement in Oregon. Um, so he decided he could go up to Oregon and, uh, that's where he met my grandma. 
And so he and his brother started a construction business together. And uh, that's how I ended up being from Oregon instead of Texas. <laughs> Everything going to Texas was full. So he just went to Oregon. <laughs> <laughs> well, it mirrors what I think it was Dan John I was talking to, who's uh, one of the strength and conditioning gurus. And he was talking about his granddad and he had struggled because I forget where he was deployed now, but I think he was actually in Europe. But, um, you know, they talk about the ticker tape parades and his, his transition out was more like your granddad's. There was no parade. Like he's just trying to kind of, you know, find his way back. So we, yeah. you know, like Sebastian Junger talks about it a lot, you know, we talk about the parallel, the paradox between Vietnam and World War II. But as he pointed out, yes, yeah, some people got that. You know, there's the iconic pictures, but there's a lot of our yeah. World War II veterans that didn't didn't have that at all. And he didn't, you know, he told me this this last weekend. We had a very, he's 92 and a half years old. We just came back from a hunting trip, which I'll go into in a second. Uh, it was epic. Um, but he, you know, I, I kind of, I interviewed him for a local news affiliate um, that happened to come out on this hunting trip. Um, just because I knew some of the background and these little piecemeal stories that he had told me over the last two decades. And I kind of wanted to lump them together and get one, one narrative to save forever. Um, and one thing he said in this, in this interview that I, I was doing, uh, I'd never heard him say before. He said, I, I didn't want to remember any of this. I've been, I spent my whole life trying to forget this. Um, because he, he saw, I mean, he wasn't there when the bombs dropped, but he saw the aftermath of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, and he, he was just a kid from Texas and, you know, he had to figure out how to process that mass, massive destruction and loss of life on his own. There was no reintegration. There was no, I'm sure there wasn't even propaganda. And it's not like he got there and left. He was there for all of the aftermath. Um, so he, he, he never really wanted to deal with it. He just didn't want to remember it. Um, the hunting trip. I got to talk about this hunting Please. trip. Please. I, I need to talk. A huge, huge thank you to a nonprofit called Life and Liberty Outdoors. Um, a friend of mine that I met through archery, and, uh, a wounded vet, uh, Jason Tabansky, called me up out of the blue and said, your grandpa was in World War II, right? I said, yeah. He's like, you want to go on a hunting trip? I'm like, yeah. He's like, can you, can you go this weekend in Texas? I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> 92 and a half. It takes, I, I travel a lot, but it, it, it takes a little bit of, a little of coordination to, my grandpa lives six hours from me, so I'm not going to let him travel by himself and get down there and travel with him and whatnot. But we set it up and uh, we just did it this last weekend. Life and Liberty Outdoors flew uh, my grandfather and myself from Oregon to Amarillo picked us up, put us up in a hunting lodge with, and, uh, had us out on a, an exotic hunt, um, which is a thing in Texas. Uh, and my grandfather said, uh, this is probably the last hunting trip I'll, I'll ever go on. And it, it just meant the world to him to be able to, to go do this. The only question he has, he and my grandma were both like, how did you set this up? Sometimes. Pretty important, Grandpa. <laughs> <laughs> kind of a big deal. <laughs> kind of a big deal. Yeah, but I'll I'll throw up some pictures of that on my on my Instagram in the next few days. I'm trying to figure out. I'm still a little bit high off of it, and I'm trying to figure out how to write about it. Uh, that that'll do it any kind of justice. But it, just life and liberty outdoors. If you're looking for somebody to give to, these guys 
their charter is they take wounded vets, uh, combat wounded vets hunting. That's, that's it. That's all they do. And, uh, it's, there's a lot of veteran nonprofits out there. Um, and most of them are pretty good. Some of them aren't, but most of them are pretty good. Um, but just the, the impact I saw this have on my grandfather from World War II and a, and a, a Vietnam vet and an Afghan vet father and son team that were also there. It was, it was pretty cool. It's something I haven't seen before. Beautiful. Well, I want to, I want to get into, you know, some of the nonprofits that you guys support at Black Rifle as well. Cause I think that's, that's, you know, it doesn't seem to be front and center and it's probably on purpose, but you know, that's the side of any business that I like is the altruistic element. Um, with, uh, Firstly, with the exotic, you reminded me. You said your mom was a ballet dancer. Excuse me, a ballet dancer, a belly dancer. Was belly she dancer, actually yeah. from one of the regions that it's famous for, which I would imagine would be kind of like the Middle East area, or is it something she just got into? Yeah, the uh, the the southeast part of Portland. <laughs> so she was born and raised in Portland. Okay, so she was just exposed I, to it. I have no idea how she how she got into that. <laughs> Brilliant. And then with the, the hunting, um, I mean, that was, would be later in the timeline normally, but we're seeing as we're there. Um, I just emceed uh, Operation During Warriors gala that they did. Oh, great. Yeah. So I know, you know, they have the archery side. I had um, Caleb on a little while ago. So talk to me again. You know, the, we have you know, a lot of these retreats with with veterans and, you know, some, you know, we have like uh, you know, diving and skydiving, some of the things that they do. But archery was a newer you know, kind yep. of leg for them. And I see a lot of that now, the archery and the hunting. What are you seeing as far as that and healing with some of these men and women from the military backgrounds? Well, I can give you a personal perspective on it. Um, I hadn't touched a bow at all since like Boy Scout camp uh, when I was in junior high uh, prior to working at Black Rifle Coffee. And uh, when we when Evan decided that we were going to have this adaptive athlete shoot, it was really centered around uh, our friend Clint trial who uh, was less than a year out from losing his legs. Um, he, he was kind of the inspiration for everything on that. It was really designed to um, get him up and about. And I, I I'm friends with Clint. I don't know how much he was struggling. He's, an incredibly resilient and strong person. Um, but everybody has their limit. Um, but the byproduct of that adaptive shoot, you know, Caleb was out there and Jonathan Lopez, um, and they were both, uh, deeply entrenched in OEW. Um, and they were both better archers than I was as well. <laughs> Even Jonathan with his teeth, which is amazing. Yeah, oh, man. Yeah, so my fiance, then girlfriend, was out uh, helping out with this adaptive shoot. And we had the Easton Center in Salt Lake City rented out so people could get some actual instruction because not everybody was like Caleb or, or Lopez. A lot of people, this was their first time. And PSC bows gave them bow and we had arrows, the whole setup, right? Uh, Leopold came in with, with uh, range finders and optics for people. It was, it was a pretty big uh, production um, and for a great cause. Uh, but I, uh, <laughs> I'm standing there and I'm watching Lopez shoot and he's pulling with his teeth and it's not like it's a 45 pound draw. He's got that thing up to, I think he's shooting an 80 pound bow right now with his mouth. Um, but Nicole, 
looked at him just in amazement and said, how do you, how do you do that? And Lopez with his, with his accent says, with my tongue. <laughs> <laughs> and I've never seen Nicole blush before, but she blushed so <laughs> it's pretty funny. <laughs> so <clears throat> to answer your question on that, um, you, you get by giving, you definitely get by giving. And I think that's why a lot of people find themselves in the nonprofit realm. But uh, with archery specifically, uh, I was inspired. I, I, I received a bow from Black Rifle and kind of instructed to get good at it. <laughs> um, and I count myself lucky on that because what, where else is that going to happen? You know, you get completely outfitted with kit and get told to go outside and play. Um, I, uh, I, I got a little bit of instruction, uh, initially just, just the basics, but I had to talk myself through the entire sequence of shooting, um, you know, from stance all the way up and it, but everything that I was doing there reminded me of the principles of marksmanship that I had learned in the army throughout the years. Um, but there was, there was no bang, there was no you know, this isn't a qualification. You don't have to worry about that. This isn't for promotion points. This isn't for survivability. Nobody's shooting at you. This isn't for anybody else survival. Nobody's shooting at your buddies. Everything about this was just go through the steps, go through the algorithm, breathe, and hit the target. And there was a, a Zen-like centering quality to, to this that um, I really latched onto. It was taking something that I already knew how to do uh, and applying it to something that was meditation. So I, I know it's, it's done that for some other vets, but that is the personal impact of, of archery on me. Um, and just like anything that is good for you, I, I haven't done it in a while. <laughs> and I need to get back out there, especially since the weather is getting better. And we have total archery challenge coming up. I'm going to get embarrassed if I, if I don't get behind the bow soon. <laughs> you get your ass kicked. Yeah. Yeah. But at that adaptive shoot, watching uh, guys like Lopez and, and Caleb uh, and Clint, um, watching them shoot and watching them just be outside, just just walking up and down mountains is, is challenging for this that for those guys. That's a challenge in itself. You tack on carrying gear and going through everything else that is the only thing that I'm working on, you know, the shooting a bow it was just inspiring and that was part of the mission of that we laid down for the adaptive shoot is we can only invite so many veterans to this thing to outfit and, and shoot but we can we can do a media production on them highlighting their experiences and 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 challenges and inspire others to get up off the couch and get outside whether they're missing limbs or not and we're about to do the uh we're about to do the third I don't know when when this goes into uh, when this is going to air, but at the end of April, we're we'll be kicking off our third annual adaptive athlete shoot. Beautiful. Well, we'll definitely be out before then. But I think I can I can concur completely. Being in the the CrossFit space since '06, uh, like watching if you're going to pull something good from war and and something from you know good from the fact that our men and women are coming back, obviously with mental trauma, but also the physical trauma. Yeah. You look at you know 
Mark Ormrod and um, Rob Jones and Caleb and you know so all these people I've had on the show that are you know missing one, two, three limbs, and the mindset that they've brought to the average person. You know, I mean that. Yeah, you can say like hashtag no excuses. What the fuck does that mean? Nothing. But walking the walk and kind of you know truly being inspired. It's not about excuses. It's just like. Not oh that person can do it so I should do it but that person is doing it there's there's intrinsically something that's kind of firing me back up again and then you take the adaptive side all right you're not a wounded vet but you broke your leg you you know whatever now you're like well I can work around it now because I've just watched this you know this marine that came back I mean I, I climbed the World Trade Center one World Trade with Rob Jones and he mm-hmm. bear crawled a hundred and whatever it was stairs amazing yeah you know so. You know, my peers, for example, in the fire service that say, oh, you know, not not all of them, but there are some that, oh, training's too hard. I don't want to do that. Well, when you've watched a, you know, double amputee bear crawl up to the World Trade Center, you that's your calibration now. You don't have an excuse. Right, so yeah. these these events, they're so healing, obviously, for the people involved. But what has come out of some of these conflicts is some of the most inspirational leaders I have ever seen. And, you know, and I think that's... That's a community, like you said, about about providing um, exposure and you know, documenting them. The world needs to see them. They don't need to see the Biebers and the Kardashians. There's a place and time for that, whatever. But these are the people that should be front and center on our screens because I think yeah. people would talk less about you know masks and vaccines and, and petrol prices if they had something else that was actually worthy to be inspired by, for example, some of these adaptive events that are put on. Yeah. I wish there was a way that we could break people down to the foundation without actually breaking people. I wish there was a way to do that. And I suppose if that existed, it wouldn't really be breaking people in the first place because people tend to come back from, from these harrowing experiences, from these challenges, they either build back incredibly, just exponentially stronger people like Caleb uh, or they break all together and their foundation just shatters and there there's not a lot of in between. Well, maybe there is, I'm probably in between, <laughs> but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not missing any parts. I've got some, I've got some aches and pains. Uh, but you know, my back has been getting in mail from AARP for 12 years, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I, you know, I'm not missing anything. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, that's, that's more of a philosophical issue. Uh, I think I, somebody posted, it's been traveling around Instagram for the last couple of weeks, that this thing about uh, soft times make something or other. Have you, have you seen this? Oh, yeah, I, I yeah. Soft, soft times make soft, well, you know, hard times make hard men, you know, hard men make easy times or whatever. And it goes back to basically every, makes, everyone's yeah, a pussy again and we should just give up. Right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. 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 There's, I don't know. I mean, how do you, how do you deal with any of that? You don't want to, you don't want to make hard times. I wondered that about that for more for my own kids than anything else. Like, uh, how do I make things hard enough for them that they appreciate it without just being an absolute dick? You know, I, it's and line. two out of my th- three of my kids are grown. So really it's, it's just one kid I'm worried about. <laughs> on this because I've already screwed the other two up but 
But it is, it is a, a fine line. I love that kind of, you know, seek discomfort philosophy. But yeah, there, there's a middle ground. I mean, there are things about modern society that are phenomenal and I wouldn't want to go backwards. But um, I, I mean, I think it goes down, like you said, about everyone should serve. And I know Sebastian Junger talks about that, you know, that doesn't have to be military service, but some sort of, you know, volunteerism. When you yeah. go back to truly understanding community and, and actually giving – I think that recalibrates in that way when when you're not the most important person on the planet. I think, again, the middle 90%, they just need to be kind of led the right way. And I don't mean that kind of patronizingly, but I think it's only the extremes that we normally hear. But most people are good people. Most people would put the work in. And But for example, you know, we have so much, you know, obesity in this country. If you created an environment where the main street of any town or city had healthy options and great outdoor spaces for exercise and there was a solid PE program, I think you'd have a lot more fired up individuals. But if you're not that kind of whatever percent that's intrinsically motivated because you were fortunate enough to have the upbringing that you did, it's very easy to get stuck in that middle. I think that's the problem is that we've got soft leaders, you know, and we haven't created an environment to to inspire people and give them the tools to raise themselves up. And I think some of that comes from, and this is just my own political theory once again, but I, I think some of that comes from our leaders uh, get sucked into the trap of listening to the loudest voices. And the loudest voices are not the majority. I think the, the majority is probably, whether it's right of center or left of center, it's still center. But the people that are really shouting, and holding up signs and organizing protests and all this. And I saw this because I was in the Seattle riots. They're, they're on one extreme or the other and they're, they're just shouting and politicians don't like to be shouted at and they'd really like to win. So they end up listening to that. And the result of that is it's not, it's not normalized to be in shape anymore. You know, we, when I was in grade school, there was, we had like the presidential physical fitness award and, and things like that. You, you were incentivized to do this and maybe it was just a certificate, but you know, I got a certificate for reading a certain number of books in the first grade. And I, I had that. Gosh, I think my parents still have that for somewhere. It, it was, it was an incentive and it made you feel proud about doing something. Now. I mean, granted, I haven't been in school for a long time, but. I don't, I don't really think it's incentivized anymore. Everything from uh, bad food in school lunches to now body shaming is a thing. I mean, okay, if you've got a disability, sure. But other than that, just, I, I guess it's okay to be fat if you want to be fat. <laughs> but who, but who <laughs> wants to be fat? That's the thing. I mean, that's. I don't know anybody that wants to be fat. No. Even actors that have made their money off of being fat eventually get skinny. Look at, look at Jonah Hill. <laughs> that was his whole persona. He's like, meh, I'm skinny now. <laughs> Deal with it. So with that fat shaming, though, I mean, that's the thing that breaks my heart as a medic. You know, again, we talk about our truths, your truth. Obviously, you've seen a lot, you know, in different countries. My truth is in America, there's nothing, there's no upside to being obese because you're, you know, the last thing you see is my ugly face shoving a, a tube down your throat and defibrillating you and then pulling a yeah. sheet over your head. So when I see this fat shaming thing, yeah, if, if someone's being a dick, you're being a dick. It's not about the size. It could be, you know, my accent, my teeth, my, you know, my wrinkles, whatever. They'll find something. But to 
normalize or even kind of uh, you know make like put on I'll put on a pedestal big is beautiful it's like no no it's 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 not you know and don't be yeah. ashamed of it and but start today and start working because when you see for example the men that you serve with what the human body is capable of it's amazing and it's heartbreaking when you see a morbidly obese you know 16 year old and you're like you're never even gonna find out all the fun shit you can do with the human body and now it's being just fed by it's okay you're beautiful just keep eating you know the way you're eating and playing video games because i'm sorry but you're going to end up seeing me and you're only 40 years old why do we have multi-million dollar campaigns against the tobacco industry but we have marketing campaigns for plus size anything just just trying to normalize that i don't understand I don't understand that because they're both health issues and we're glorifying one and demonizing the other. Why, why did McDonald's, why was McDonald's allowed to be the sponsor of the soccer world cup? Cause nobody cares about soccer. <laughs> <laughs> Outside of America, they do. <laughs> because they point. have salads now, James, they have salads. <laughs> and apples on the side. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's just it. I mean, they're, they're putting the soda machines in our schools and all that stuff. It's an easy fix. Like, when you're yeah. in school, we're going to educate you. We're going to, you know, teach you life skills. We're going to get rid of standardized testing. We're going to do PE every day. And we're going to teach you about real food. And we're going to cook you real food. And then even if this generation is a loss, the next generation is going to be fitter, healthier, have an understanding of what we eat and where it comes from. And hopefully we'll break the cycle. But after two years of a pandemic, not a fucking word has been said about any of that stuff. No, no, it hasn't. And I've got a, I've got a kid in high school right now and uh, watching her come from, come home from school. It, 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 it's just weird. It, it, the whole thing has been thrown off. It's like she was riding a bike two years ago and it, the thing crashed and the spokes are all bent and we're trying to get back on that same bike. It's what it feels like. Yep. It's really strange. The whole thing is just weird. It is indeed. And I, I don't know what I'd like to, you know, offer up a solution to that because I don't like saying there's problems with that solution, but I have no idea what it is. No clue. New, but I, I will new say leadership. this. <laughs> like control <laughs> I, all delete. <laughs> after two years of, of watching her do these BS zoom classes, I have zero qualms about taking her out of school to go do some experience with me where I think she'll get more out of it than whatever is going on in the classroom. Um, I, I don't, I just don't feel bad about that anymore. Like if she has the minimum days required to be in school and she's not failing classes, she can travel the earth with me as far as I'm concerned. I do the same thing. Like someone made yeah. the comment the other day, one of my friends, one of my son's friend's mothers, she's like, you're one of the only people I've ever seen that takes your son on trips during school time yeah i'm like because well firstly they were fine kicking all our children out this last year right. i'm in florida here so obviously they got to go back a lot earlier than a lot but but secondly you want to teach geography you want to teach history take them to the places that they'd be learning about in a textbook you know yeah. he, he remembers the capital of france because he's actually been there you know he knows where portugal right. is he knows about you know some stonehenge he stood under the stones of stonehenge versus all you know is your town and a bunch of textbooks so there's there's a happy yep. medium i think teachers are amazing but 
the system we have, you know, absolutely. I think the, the less is more philosophy extends to school as well. Give the parents more time with their children so they can actually do things that they'll truly remember. I hope this isn't indicative of um, school systems in general, but uh, flying back from Texas this uh, on Monday, um, my grandpa and I were at the gate in Houston changing planes and uh, really nice kid, younger guy. Uh, he was there to be the wheelchair attendant for, for my grandfather. He was wearing a World War II veteran hat. Uh, and he, very polite, very well-mannered, you know, firm handshake the whole bit. He's like, hey, thank you for your service. My grandpa's like, oh, my son, my grandson was in the war too. He's like, oh, thank you for your service. And uh, then he he asked me, uh, he said, World War II. I said, yeah. He's like, and he goes, where was that? Uh, it took me off guard. I, <laughs> I was like, how do I answer this without sounding like a complete smart ass? <laughs> it's like, well, kind of everywhere. <laughs> it's like, but he was in the Pacific. <laughs> oh, <laughs> then he asked me if I was in Vietnam. I was like, oh, man. <laughs> Did you ever meet Bubba in this shrimp company? <laughs> oh, <man>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it is, it's oh, sad. And I got, I'm very, very fortunate. My son, you know, we watched Band of Brothers together over and over again. He loved um, Hacksaw Ridge. is one of his favorite stories. So, again, you know, yeah. we talk about media. Some of those beautiful stories that were really told well, Dunkirk, um, that's a great way to educate children, you know, but, uh, a book, especially if, you know, we're in this bizarre place now where all of a sudden Dr. Seuss is offensive. Well, I'm pretty sure right. Oh, the places you'll go is a pretty damn yeah. inspiring book. And I'm still trying to see how a, a snitch or a snotch is racist or, <laughs> you know, offensive to transgender or whatever it is. But to me, they were pretty damn positive, you know, books. And when you look at all the, the things that Dr. Seuss said, it seemed like he was a pretty decent human. So, you know, so much of that distraction again, those shiny objects has taken our children away from learning life's you know, true lessons. Like history will repeat itself if we don't teach them about World War II. That was one of the most tragic, you know, horrendous events in modern human history. Hopefully we're not there right now. Yeah, I hope so. I do hope so. I had um, Dr. Edith Eager on the show. She was actually in Auschwitz. She survived. She mm. was taught, uh, forced to dance for uh, Joseph Mengele. But uh, her story is absolutely incredible. But her and her sister made it out. And, uh, you know, and so she's still here to tell the story. But again, fast forward a few more years, we're going to lose all these voices. And who's going to tell them then if we're not passing that information on? Yeah. Yeah, which is exactly why I wanted to record that conversation with my, with my grandfather. I'm really really happy that i had that opportunity because it's like you said once it's gone it's gone absolutely well i'd love to get onto your journey into the military you touched on you know, sure. training with the fdmy as far as the medic so just very quickly when you were school age you know what kind of sports were you playing what was your athleticism level then and also what were you dreaming of becoming uh i wasn't uh i wasn't doing any sports as a kid uh, i think i did karate and soccer when I was very young, like everybody that's very young does, uh, in the eighties. Um, but, um, I remember in the fifth grade, my, uh, I, I came home with a permission slip for pop Warner football. Uh, and my dad said, you don't play football. And I said, I don't He goes, no. I said, okay. And that was the end of that. Um, so I didn't actually do any organized sports until high school. Uh, moved in with my mom and my stepdad 
and uh, I went to a very small two-way Christian school my my freshman year. I was a pastor's kid, and I decided I needed to do a sport. So, uh, am I am I jumping over anything here? No, no, no. Carry on. Okay. Yeah. So uh, I was involved in the outdoors growing up. I did a lot of uh, hiking and camping, and um, my uh, my dad and my grandfather were both uh, pretty avid hunters and horsemen. Um, I, I didn't do any equine, anything myself other than get stepped on an occasion and, and ride, uh, <laughs> ride behind one of them, but on the saddle, <clears throat> but, uh, yeah, going into high school, um, I decided, uh, I was going to play volleyball and I didn't know that that was a, a women's sport in, in high school. So I was denied that. So I was like, well, I didn't want to play football because I felt like everybody had been playing football um, their entire life up to that point. And, and I was 14 years old and uh, looking back on it, I know that I, I probably could have been fine, especially as a freshman, especially at a smaller school. Um, but I was, I was intimidated by that, uh, by being, but this thought that I wouldn't be as good as the rest of the freshmen. So I did cross country. Uh, where I was terrible because I am, I don't know if you can see it through the camera, but I'm not built like a long distance runner. <laughs> yeah, my son's a long distance runner and he's, he's not built like you. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad I did it. Uh, just because, you know, enlisting at some point and doing special forces selection and whatnot, I knew what that fire in my lungs meant. And I knew when I could push through it. And <laughs> actually, I don't think there's ever a point where I haven't been able to push through it and collapse but uh that was my first organized sport was was cross country and by default i ran varsity um because it was a two-way school uh so i went from zero to 5k and uh, every race i ran i said about halfway through i'd say okay this is it i hate this i'm quitting after this race and then i get that endorphin runner's high at the end i was like oh okay that wasn't so bad and then I'd just rinse and repeat i only did it my freshman year I briefly did uh, track and then I played JV basketball one year, my junior year um, after really not picking up a basketball at all before my freshman year, just playing pickup games and whatnot. Um, but that was, that was kind of it for organized sports until I, until I got in the military. Um, I was, uh, I danced in junior high. I was, uh, I was on the, belly dancing. I, I took, no, <laughs> Uh, modern and tap and uh, and jazz, a little bit of African ballet. It was just this big mix. The reason I I did that in the seventh grade, I was in Southeast Portland. The reason I signed up for that class is because it was all girls, <laughs> and I just discovered them. I was like, oh, you know, this is in in uh, hunting whitetail. They would call that setting your blind up next to a feeder on a food plot. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, I did that my seventh and eighth grade year. Uh, and, uh, yeah, one of my friends caught on to what I was doing. And so my eighth grade year, there were two boys in dance, but <laughs> that worked out. Okay. Uh, yeah. So, uh, high school, I was, have you ever seen the movie Rushmore, the Wes Anderson film? I, uh, you know, I'm, I've actually, I can see the cover in my head, but I don't think I've ever actually yeah. watched it. So the premise of this movie is that, there's this kid who he's uh, he goes to a private school, but he's poor and he is outspoken. And the 
involved in every club, president of half of them, but is kind of an underachiever and almost gets kicked out for academic probation constantly. That was me in high school. The two a T that was me in high school. I was the president of almost everything. Uh, I would skip school on occasion. I would skip classes that I didn't think were important. Um, <laughs> I was just kind of, I was on my own agenda. <laughs> I, uh, senior year rolled around and I got the, uh, there's a few class awards. I got one was most likely to be impeached and, uh, and class clown. So <laughs> it was a weird dichotomy. That's um, funny. I didn't but, realize uh, that, you know, in a few years later that we have a president yeah, that was a clown that nah. didn't get impeached. <laughs> yeah. Right. I, I look back on that and I was actually thinking about this just a few days ago. It doesn't seem like much has changed. Like I'm, I'm still kind of middle management and uh, nobody knows when to take me seriously or, or not. <laughs> um, I, um, I briefly went to college um, after high school. I, uh, I got accepted into a limited entry journalism program at University of Oregon. But I only wanted to go. There's only two schools I wanted to go to. One was Mount Hood Community College, and then was Central Oregon Community College, and that was for their their proximity to ski areas. That was it. And Mount Hood Community had that University of Oregon program. It was a transfer program. So I got accepted into that. Went for about half a term, and told my professor that I wanted to take a sabbatical for a year. I didn't even know what sabbatical meant. Uh, but uh, my goal going into that was to be a, uh, a photojournalist and, and war correspondent. I, I was really interested in traveling and had kind of an adventure bug. Um, it's, it's kind of uh, interesting where I ended up, what, what I ended up doing with, with that being my original goal. But uh, I took that, that gap year so that I could uh, work at Mount Hood Meadows, a, a ski resort that had free season passes for their employees. So I did that and uh, I got my girlfriend pregnant and uh, snow melted. I didn't have medical benefits uh, and I didn't have money to go back to school. So uh, I enlisted <laughs> and here I am 26 years later. That's a beautiful story of passion and desire. Yeah. <laughs> passion, desire, patriotism. <laughs> so what what made you choose, you know, go all the way to, to SF selection? And then again, with you not having that kind of solid athletic background that you hear from from some of your community, what was it that gave you the durability and, and grit to not ring the bell when so many people did around you? Um, well that year of cross country helped. It definitely did. Um, at least on the running parts. But, um, when I enlisted, I signed up to be a 19 kilo, which is, uh, a, a tank crewman, uh, rolling around in Abrams and they're not known for their IQ. No offense to anybody that's a tanker, <laughs> but they, they'll be the first to tell you that the, the dat dumbass tanker is a, is a nickname in the army for a 19 kilo. Um, I, I could have had any job I wanted. I had a pretty high GT score, um, but I wanted to be a tanker because the best job on the mountain was a snowcat operator. And I figured if I could drive a 60 ton tank, surely in two years when I got out, they would hire me to be a snowcat operator. And I was just going to, you know, I was going to groom trails for the first couple hours of the day, get first tracks, and then go back to my little mountain cabin, 
smoke a bowl and write a novel. That's that's what I wanted to do. That was huge, not, lofty goals. Not a bad dream. No, but I forgot to incorporate how uh, the GI Bill was going to incorporate into that, any of that. Uh, but, you know, I was 19, so whatever. Think all kinds of things when we're 19. Uh, so when I got to Fort Hood after OSET training, um, the Horse Cavalry Detachment uh, in the 1st Cav Division was looking for fresh meat. And I knew that the... Um, the cav unit that I had orders to go to, 212 cav, they were going straight to Kuwait, like within days of me getting assigned there. And I was a newlywed. And again, I wasn't really doing this for service to my country. I was doing this for college money and benefits. I really didn't have any interest in going to the desert. I wanted to go home to my wife. Um, so when these guys came to the reception battalion looking for, uh, looking for people to try out, I, as PV nothing Simac, raised my hand and went out there and tried out. And the tryout didn't really have anything to do with how well you could ride a horse. It was, it was uh, how well could you put up with hazing and, and bullshit. Uh, there was some intestinal fortitude to it. It, it was a, there was a ranch style PT test, um, and there's just a lot of getting yelled at and double timing. And if you made the initial, if you passed the initial ranch style PT test. You were out there for 30 days, double timing everywhere, wearing a pistol belt with a canteen and just getting yelled at and doing lots, lots of, lots of pushups. But I was a private that that was my entire military experience. So I didn't, I didn't have anything. I just figured that's what the army was like. I didn't have anything else to gauge it off. So I didn't do bad in there. I, I got voted in to, to that unit. And I went from, I was out there for Four years, I think. I re-enlisted twice out there on horseback. And I was going around the country doing parades and rodeos and uh, drilling ceremony on horseback. And I was just having a good time. But it wasn't an easy job. All the maintenance on the horses. I was a ferry apprentice for a little bit. Um, you know, it, it, it was physically demanding. Uh, but we had a high level of pride and esprit de corps in that unit. And it was all volunteer. If you didn't like the work, you didn't like getting thrown off and being told to get right back on. You went back what we call downrange. You just go back to whatever army job you came from. It was a, it was a special place and we had a lot of pride in being out there. And uh, when I was an E5, when I, uh, I went back to a conventional armor battalion and I hated it. I hated everything about it because that level of pride and motivation and everything else, it wasn't there. I had, I was a squad leader and I had one dude go AWOL twice in two months. I had to get people to show up to work on time. I just didn't understand any of it. Coming from where I was at, we were, we were there because we wanted to be. Where I went to, we were there because we had to be. And uh, it didn't sit well with me. And um, I, um, I had started playing... When I about the same time I went back to a conventional unit, I started playing uh, rugby for uh, Fort Hood. I was on the post team, um, and this kind of goes back to I, I, I did fairly well. Uh, I, I decided I, this this rugby and kind of special forces thing kind of started at the same time. So I went from. 178 or so 178 pounds to 
191 pounds, um, just hitting the gym for rugby. I put on some size. I ended up being fairly good. I could, I could give a hit. I could definitely take a hit. I think I was better at that than giving hits at the time. Um, but you know, it was kind of, it replaced what I was missing in that, in that pride and kind of that physical challenge. Um, and, uh, when a buddy of mine, um, that I played rugby with said he was going to go to special forces selection. I went down to the SF recruiter's office and watched the video and whatnot. Um, and we ended up going to selection together and it was, it was challenging for me. Um, I know a lot of guys over the years that I've talked to that came from the 82nd or long range surveillance units or range of time. They say it wasn't that difficult for them, but for me, it was very challenging for me because the post I was at, they didn't even, they didn't even issue large rucksacks. I had to go buy one to train with. It was all mechanized. If you couldn't, if you couldn't roll there, you weren't getting there. And this was all on foot. So I didn't have that tactical background that everybody else did coming into this. So it was a, more, more of a challenge for me. Um, and, uh, you know, 21 days, uh, of, I think there's only one time that I actually almost threw in a towel and, uh, my friend, Justin, that was on my team. Um, he, uh, he came from Ranger battalion and he came up next to me and I said, Justin, I don't, I don't think I can make this. And he cussed me out. He just straight up cussed me out and said, and, and told me I can. <laughs> and I did. <laughs> so that was the end of that. That's the only time that, I mean, there were, plenty of tough times in there, but that's the only time that I was thinking about voluntary withdrawing. Um, so 21 days later, they split us into, into two formations. Uh, they just, we were out there standing on the gravel and they started calling out people's numbers because you don't have a name in selection. You've got a, a, a candidate number. And uh, there was enough names that called, they called out that I thought for sure we were about to get told by the NCO in front of the formation. Hey, thanks for, thanks for playing. Um, try again. And, uh, he said, uh, if you're still standing in this formation, congratulations, you've been selected for special forces training. And, oh man, just, just about knocked me over. I mean, it was like officer and gentleman, people throwing their BDU caps in there and him saying, all right, calm down. Cause you've got a long road ahead of you. You're not even close to being there yet. But uh, the challenge that I faced in special forces selection, the personal challenges for me, uh, I was kind of riding that high when we got our wish list in front of us to pick uh, MOSs because I didn't have a medical background, but I knew that 18 Delta special forces medic was the hardest one. And uh, I figured, well, this is the hardest thing I've ever done. Why not just keep with that trend? And uh, so I picked SF medic. It, it was definitely hard. It was challenging. <laughs> so what sports preferred? I would say cross country, that one year cross country, even though I sucked at it um, and I'm not a natural runner, I would say that gave me a foundation for uh, what to expect in distance running. And it gave me some skills that I needed to do that because, man, I'm sure you've seen some, some Clydesdales out there just clodding along and you're like, how do your knees even work? How, how is that possible? Um, so I, I got some technical instruction on actually how to run both distance and track prepped me on sprinting a little bit, even though I didn't really use that that much. 
but rugby, I think is really what prepared me for most of the physical challenges in there and in team week. Um, because you can be an absolute physical specimen, but if you don't know how to lead or follow, you're fucked. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, with the, the journey to, as you said, 18 Delta, the, the army medic or special forces medic, um, as you touched on earlier in the conversation, you found yourself in New York. So talk to me about that. Yeah. So August, September of 2001, um, we were at a stage, you know, civilians i think the i think most paramedic programs are two years is that is that about right um usually about a year if you do it um, a year yeah with yeah. the shift friendly ones yeah so we went um and this includes military medicine we went from emt nothing i think we got basic in a week and then within six months we were nationally registered paramedics and a month of that included an internship with uh at that time with fdny um, we came back and so I was up there on the street and, uh, you know, you talked about, um, uh, the calamity of obesity. That was actually my first fatality ever was, was a 54 year old obese woman. Um, she had, some of it wasn't her fault. She had, uh, what let, I don't know what she looked like before this, but she had actually been um, partially paralyzed by falling on a falling down steps at, at a zoo, <laughs> which I I'm only laughing because of the, the kind of chain reaction of, of calamity here. But uh, she was she was obese and uh, didn't do well in the heat, and uh, that was my that was my first fatality. Um, it, it was it was really interesting seeing how medics triaged problems like they they almost like that was my that being my first casualty i wanted to throw everything i had i, I couldn't understand why we didn't cry her because they're having trouble getting a tube on her or whatnot and we finally got her to to the er at, at lincoln memorial in in uh, new york city and this resident was you know they just barely started chest compressions and it wasn't anything like what i'd seen in movies or tv where everybody's give it all they got and the code team and blah, blah, and paddles are out and nothing. It was just like, all right, well, we can probably call this. And I, I was mad. It was like, I, I could have cracked her. I know how to do that. I can do it in under two minutes. Why didn't I get the opportunity to at least attempt to save her life? And um, I faced that a few times throughout my years, institutional medicine versus superhero medicine. And, uh, I don't know what the right answer there is, but I, I did start falling into institutional medicine later on um, where you can just kind of predict I, ethically. I don't know what the right answer there is, but there's, there's risk versus reward. And uh, I don't know, like a, I'm sure, I don't know how many years you have in the fire service, but I'm, I'm sure I see your, your EMT patch there in the background. So I know you've got some, some casualties under your belt. Um, it, it was just an interesting experience going from no prior medical experience whatsoever to this drinking from the fire hose of knowledge and you, you either passed or you didn't to being on the street and actually trying to put this into play 
but it's not just your medical algorithms that and your knowledge that are going into you. There's a lot of experience and empirical knowledge and is it worth actually doing these invasive procedures and, and, and things like that? That was a, that was a, that was a learning process that couldn't have been duplicated. Um, anywhere else. I don't think I'm, I'm thankful for it. Well, it is, it is weird because you, at the more time you spent, so I was a, a firefighter for 14 years um, and became a medic about, Got seven years, uh, eight years into that, um, and there's a point where in in the civilian world, where you, know, you have what they call a, a show code. You know, someone was dead, but they really a real ball down to the the medics weren't comfortable just telling the people, "Hey, I'm sorry, your loved one's gone." So they would, you know, it's a child or whatever, and they would work this yeah. code. And the reality is, as a paramedic, you know this person's done. I'll give you a perfect example. I had a guy who was a quadriplegic. And he was mm-hmm. hit in a motorcycle accident when he was 18. And that's, God, he was in the late 50s. So for 30 years, he'd been a quad. He had the GI bleed, so he was constantly vomiting up emesis. There was no way of getting an airway. There was no way of compressing his chest because his chest was so atrophied from, from his quadriplegia that it was like pushing on the quarter panel of a car. So we had right. no airway. We had no way of compressing his heart. And uh, I think he'd gone into like straight, you know, asystole as well. So we have protocols, you know, and we had to call medical control on that one. But it is much more traumatic to the family to drag that dude through. And it was actually, a, <laughs> it was at a very famous theme park resort. So we asked all these children who were trying to have their best uh, day ever. And then yeah. to a hospital only to have a doctor say, so we're going to call it. And then now that family has got a giant medical bill. You've just taken up an ER bed and yeah. you've traumatized a bunch of children, you know, covered in pixie dust for what? So, you know, that triage thing becomes a real thing. Now, you know, obviously if you're on a battleground or, you know, there's a, there's a semblance of a chance, you're going to give everything you can, but it's a really weird feeling because you almost feel like you're playing God. The book says, I need to do X, Y, and Z. Well, sometimes X, Y, and Z is just not appropriate. And that person is gone and you actually have to have the courage to say, we're not even transporting. We're going to do, you know, whatever we're required to do for X amount of time. If we don't see change A, B, and C, I'm so sorry, but your loved one is gone. And that's one of the hardest things to say to people is we're not going to try anymore. Yeah. I was, uh, my, my youngest just got her learner's permit and, uh, in kind of a, a morbid moment, we were driving over this overpass um, just around the corner from from her house. Her mom and I have have uh, split up about a decade ago, but I live I live close um, for her because I hate the, the city since 2020. <laughs> Can't stand. <laughs> uh, but um, somebody had made a very risky illegal turn right in front of us. And I told her about um, this time over a decade ago when I still lived in the house that I woke up, I'd just come back from, I was a, I was a medic for Blackwater uh, for the state department. And I hadn't, I was off rotation. I hadn't been back for very long. And about three in the morning, I was woken up by a very loud boom, which caused me to roll out of bed and lay flat on the floor and figure out where the fuck it was that I was laying <laughs> because this was me opening up to her a little about my experiences too, because I was so disoriented because I had partitioned my life. I had work life, which was 
overseas where bad things happened. And I had home life, which was a safe place for me. And work life had just very rudely interrupted my safe space. And I'm laying on the floor trying to figure out where I am and what's going on. Um, so I, you know, unclouded, figured I was home. I was looking out her bedroom and I, I saw red and blue flashing lights. Um, so I went out to the edge of our driveway and I saw more red and blue flashing lights. So just on a whim, I grabbed my aid bag, um, which at the time was always packed because I was always ready back then. I'm not as ready now. <laughs> I can do some things, but I'm not as ready as I, as I used to be. Uh, mentally, I'm, I'm better for it, but don't get in an accident or me. <laughs> uh, I grabbed my aid bag and I went out there. And um, this, is, this happened on, on a, at the city limit. So this avenue, a woman had driven her car off the overpass and onto I-5, and it was laying there upside down. And this is 3.30 in the morning now, so there's not really any traffic. But it, with that lack of traffic, I mean, it was, it was assumed that this was very deliberate. Like she, in order to get through that guardrail, she would have had to have slammed on the gas. Um, so with it being kind of between areas of responsibility for police, we had state patrol on the freeway below and on the, the state highway slash city limit on the overpass. And you had sheriff's deputies on the north side and Seattle PD on the south side. And nobody was really taking response. I don't think anybody really wanted to get into that, that car. So I unfurled my Superman cape and I talked to the first officer I saw. I said, hey, I'm a paramedic. And he just pointed. <laughs> <laughs> so I was basically just asking for permission. Before, I couldn't even get out. He just pointed. So I went trotting down the, the slope of this overpass and into the middle of the freeway. They had traffic blocked off, but this car was upside down. And um, the woman was in her pajamas, but the roof was crushed in. She wasn't responding to, to anything verbal. And I was just about to unwrap that scarf because it was wrapped around her head. And I was like, and I, I thought, and I don't, I'd been, this was probably... 07, 08. So I'd been a medic for about four years at this point, but I'd seen enough and kind of been haunted by enough that as I went to reach for that scarf, I was like, whatever you unwrap here, you're never going to forget. And I left it. I left it. And I, I wondered for months, years after that, whether I, I did the right thing there, because I didn't feel like I did everything within the scope of my practice or my, my experience. I, I know in my heart of hearts that she's done, you know, but I, I didn't like, I didn't take a pulse. I just called for her and I kind of assessed the situation based on the total picture. Um, but I always, I, I, I always wondered about that. And I kept trying to follow up through friends and PD or fire department, what happened. I never really did get a solid answer. Uh, Shoreline fire department showed up within minutes after that with jaws of life and whatnot. So, I know that whatever care I could have given was completely negated by what, what they could have done in reality. But it, it, it kind of plays on that whole, that, that empirical, well, I was about to say an empirical experience, but that's redundantly redundant. <laughs> it, it just plays into what you're talking about. You know, is the juice worth a squeeze on things like that? And I can't honestly remember how we got on that topic, but, that that has kind of 
that was a haunting experience for me as as a medic, even with everything I've done overseas and military and contracting, et cetera. Well, that reminds me of an uh, incident we had in in Anaheim when I worked out in California, and I actually wrote about it in in a book I wrote a couple of years. That's one thing I, the good came out in twenty twenty. I wrote a book. Things had nothing else to do, <laughs> but we had this horrendous scene, um, and this little three year old was decapitated in the back, and the engine had got there first, and they'd put a, a you know like a blanket over her, and it was macabre because where a head shape should have been wasn't it was just the flat you know jawbone yeah. basically but as a younger firefighter paramedic again there's that urge to have a look and i also like you chose not to and you know it's something i've talked about later in life when you're on some of these grotesque scenes as a leader i think it's important to make sure that the only people that go in and see what needs to be seen are the absolute essential ones because there's mm-hmm. no medals for seeing the worst shit. Right. But that carries with you the rest of your life. And so, young medics, nurses, doctors, they don't, they don't get that. They're like, there it's, there's a lot of parallels between somebody who um, goes into the business of trauma and, um, and the combat armed soldier. It's a lot of parallels. Uh, you are preparing for the absolute worst and that's what you train for. Um, and you're excited when it actually happens. And once it does, you kind of wonder why you were excited about it in the first place. And then you spend the rest of your life trying to unpack that and, and come to grips with it and train the next generation. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. And I think that's it is, you know, there's, I mean, one of the big things that, ha- that haunts me is the inability to save. Like I've been the back- black cloud in my career. Like I'm the dude that has the 28 year old drop dead from a brain bleed and you do everything right and they're still dying like wait a second you right. told me in school that if i do this this and this they're gonna survive yeah. like no the gi blight you know the quadriplegic that's that's me you see my face and you're already in cardiac arrest i'm sorry but you're fucked <laughs> it's just time has shown so that creates a lot of you know a lot of casualties a lot of memories but yeah there is this kind of like element especially when we're young it's like i'm fine I can see this stuff and almost to the point where, and this is completely unethical where people will take pictures of scenes and they'll show other people like, and then you get mature, you become a mature paramedic or, you know, mm-hmm. you know, operator. And all of a sudden you realize, no, the, f- the fewer of those I can see in my career, the better, because each one yeah. of those, even if you process them well, you'll pass a fucking street or smell a certain smell. I got, I got, in uh, Disney, I was there with my wife a few years ago and someone was just pushing a stroller and it was hot and there was a blanket over a kid and they had the same kind of shoes on and I flashed right back to that kid in that car. Yeah. You know, so you yep. can never get away from it. So the fewer yep. of those that you can, you know, absorb in your career, the better. Yep, I agree. It's uh, it's it's gas in a tank, you know. You only have so much of it. I, I completely agree. My um, my wife at the time, we're, we're friends now. Uh, but uh, due to mostly due to my um, desire to work overseas rather than be at home, we're 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 no longer husband and wife. Um, she she's done she's been in medicine her entire adult life. She she was a volunteer firefighter in North Carolina turned paramedic on what they call it a rescue squad out there. Uh, and then she did, she was a paramedic, um, with putting herself through nursing school. She did a two year nursing degree, then finished her bachelor's, 
once I convinced her to move to Seattle, now she's got her master's in public health and she's done, she's done everything from firefighting all the way up to managing an ER. And uh, now she's um, some sort of director in something. She's done really well for herself. Meanwhile, I'm still plugging away at whatever it is I'm doing. Um, anyway, I'd say all that to qualify her for our difference in how we responded to anybody needing help or a car accident. If I was driving, it was an immediate pullover, unfurl my cape and grab my aid bag and see what I can do. If she was driving, it was, uh, you didn't see anything. <laughs> she, the gas <laughs> kept going. She wasn't going to stop for anything. <laughs> yeah, but it's hard. It's hard to do that because I think, you know, when you work in the nursing community and when you're in a hospital environment you're not used to responding like we bring mm -hmm. you patients they come into your environment but i i in my bat in my car you know i have i'm not a, a soldier i'm not a police officer but i have a pistol i have a tourniquet i have a bag valve mask or a rescue mask i have narcan i have yeah. just just things that might possibly save a life and i've pulled over numerous times but you as you probably know like you can't even do it consciously before you know it. You're standing there like, well, shit, I guess, <laughs> I guess I'm helping then, you know, and sometimes yeah. it's something minute, but it is a very different background. The people that work in the streets respond in a very different way than the people that work in the clinical setting. Yeah. 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 We, uh, another black rifle guy who's a PJ and a paramedic and I, we, we recently had a call and I'm wondering how much I can talk about this here because the, we, we ended up being the first responders on this, um, first trained responders. We weren't the first people there, but it was in the back country. Um, so nobody with an actual legal authority to do anything could do anything until the next day because we were, we were in the back country, but, uh, he was deceased. And my, uh, my friend Kevin was, we had, we'd split up somebody had, had ridden a snowmobile back to where we were eating dinner um, and asked for medical assistance. So we both jumped on it and uh, we split up uh, kind of priorities of work. I was going to go by the fire station that wasn't manned because it's winter time and it's in the back country and see whatever, what supplies I could get. And he was going to go assess the scene and the patient. And, uh, I caught up to him and he just had a weird look on his face. And there were, there were non-medical civilians floating around, one of which turned out to be the guy's best friend. And uh, he just, he gave me this kind of weird look and we had never worked before together before we've known each other for years, but we've never handled anything. We've never been in action together. Um, and he gave me this kind of weird look and I said, where's the, where's the patient? And he just kind of pointed down this, this snowbank. And, uh, he said, uh, I said, what's, what's, what's going on? And he just looked at me and he said in a, a, a voice that really reminded me of my medic instructors, he just said, he just looked at me and said, do your assessment. <laughs> I'm like, okay, that's kind of a response. So I went down in the bank and I, I checked for responsiveness and pulse and whatnot and had neither. So I, I, it, it was not what I was expecting. Uh, and I patient had uh, blood in the ears and it was still very warm. I was like, okay, well, pretty obvious what happened here. But I went back up and, um, you know, we had to speak with some sensitivity because there's 
there's people around. Um, and, uh, he said, did you get what I got? I said, yeah. He said, okay. But it was, it was just kind of a, it was, it's one of those things where it's kind of like you, you, you talk about med control, um, and who can actually pronounce, uh, DOA and, and things like that. And we're out there flapping weed. Neither of us are Idaho residents. My paramedic license is expired. It has been for a couple of years. His is current, but he has no authority in, in there. So we're really just highly trained good Samaritans at that point. And, uh, man, it was, it was just weird. An AED showed up. It had pediatric pads. I'm at the head trying to remember, okay, salt and pepper over ketchup. <laughs> 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 like, why do, why do these pads? I've taught CPR for years. Why do these pads look weird? Why does one of them say it goes in the back? I know it doesn't go in the back. <laughs> It was just all this. It was just weird, weird things. And um, I, I do think that we made a difference in, in showing up just in the fact that we've dealt with things like this before. And I think it made it easier for his friends and um, the other people. It definitely made it easier for uh, the emergency response because one I was using medical abbreviations over the, the inReach, and I think that clued them into taking our word for it that they didn't need to activate LifeLight, which was going to show up three hours later. But uh, you, um, you show up. I, I had an aid bag, a whole – actually, I had a whole CASVAC kit, but it was not on my snow machine. It was back in the cabins uh, seven miles away that we were – we were staying in and I was just reminded of this because you, you said what you carry. And I was thinking, well, that's why you haven't had to respond to anything is because you're actually carrying it because it's not going to happen until you don't have it. No, exactly. I left my cars <laughs> in the garage getting all changed and someone gets <laughs> smashed right yeah. in front of me. Yeah. And you're left with your hands and directing <laughs> doing traffic control. I need a ballpoint. Yeah, that's not right. <laughs> and a ballpoint pen. Yeah. Let me crack this guy with a pen. <laughs> Well, speaking of that, I want to ask you a question that I ask everyone that's been on this show that's deployed, whether it's you know, this most recent conflict or whatever. But I'll preface it by saying the same thing I always say. As a civilian, we get a very polarized view of war, You know, whether it's the kind of Fox News, kill them all, let God sort them out, whether it's the CNN, they're all a bunch of baby killers. And then you have the men and women, you know, I think Sebastian Junger talks about this the kind of veterans hall mentality, letting our, you know, veterans actually talk about what they did, good, bad, or indifferent. Firstly, the first part of the question, was there a moment, you know, you're, you're a young boy and then you find yourself in the military and you're working with you know, the horses and then, you know, consequently, you know, find yourself deployed. Was there a moment, regardless of the politics that we touched on earlier, that you found yourself in a combat zone where you, you know, witnessed whether it was atrocities of the people of that nation, or whether it was, you know, protecting the the men to the left and the right of you, but you realize that there were horrible people that had to be taken care of. <sighs> the medical rules of engagement in 2003 in Afghanistan uh, were different than they were a decade later. Um for better or worse. Uh, when I first got there, um, my team was, was on, we were, it was called a, it's called, um, AST area support team. 
So we were in, basically in the special forces headquarters and each one of us on the team was responsible for supporting a team that was out doing special forces work. None of us wanted to be in this position and nobody that's on AST duty ever wants to be on AST duty, but it is vital. It is a vital role. And I'm actually looking back on it uh, as a much more experienced Green Beret. I'm very fortunate to have had that experience prior to actually going out and being a Green Beret in the field um, because I knew how the whole support chain works. It's, it's kind of like if you, um, well, we'll just leave that. I, it, I, I knew who to talk to uh, to get support and supplies for our team and, and, if I knew when somebody was bullshitting me because I knew exactly how, who, who worked what desk and, and who was a go-getter and who uh, would just delay things because they didn't want to go sit at their desk or answer an email. Anyway, um, while I was doing that duty, um, I was moonlighting at the combat support hospital down, uh, down the road from, uh, from, from our talk. Um, and this was back before it became a hard structure. So it was just a series of tents that were uh, connected and uh, had an overpressure system to blow things out and whatnot. And um, when I was, I, there wasn't, it was the wintertime. So it was not the fighting season. It was like, I got there September, October. So things were starting to die down a little bit. And by first, by first snow, Taliban at that point, mostly just hides away till fighting season again. Um, but, uh, so there weren't a lot of casualties. It wasn't just like a constant influx of casualties in the combat support hospital. And there was a lot of locals that we were treating that were getting hurt. Well, one of them, when I got there, I was, I was hanging around in the ICU, um, one, because there was nurses in there and two, because it seemed like the best, best chance to, to work as a medic. Uh, there was one, uh, this one particular afghan casually in there and he didn't have um he was missing his arms and legs all four uh at the joints so right at the knees and right at the elbows or just above and uh the story on him was he was a taliban fighter that had inadvertently blown himself up while in placing an ied um and uh he was medevaced I don't know by who, uh, but he was medevaced and went through surgery and whatnot uh, and was in the ICU getting the best care he could have ever possibly hoped to get. Um, so that was, that was really interesting uh, in, in respect to what your question was about um, people just being people when they're, when they're patients. There is more to that story, though. Uh, he was a very non-compliant patient and combative patient because he still hated America. And now he, here he is, the greatest irony of all. He's blown himself up while trying to kill Americans. And now Americans are giving him quality care and keeping him alive. And he's pretty pissed off about the whole, the whole thing. Um, so every time um, one of the nurses would uh, attempt to feed him or give him any care. He would just go wild with these nubs. Just, ah. Somebody came along one day knowing this was going to happen. And um, in, in spirit of support, 
Um, you know, maybe he was just excited about feeding time and uh, being having quality American care. They put, you know, there's uh, little American flags that end up getting put by by tombstones and whatnot yes. on uh, little, Memorial Day. Yeah, almost. Right. So they they took two of these and put them in his arm stump dressings. <laughs> so he was the most patriotic Taliban ever because <laughs> he's just waving these flags vigorously back and forth. Oh, I don't think that qualifies as a war crime, so I'm comfortable telling that. <laughs> I'm sure it's, it's frowned upon by somebody's chain of command somewhere. I didn't do it. I have no idea who did that, but it was it was it was pretty funny. Uh, so um, where Taliban Tommy ended up uh, once he was fit to be released, um, we talk about futility in medicine. He was flown back to his village. Um, where he was promptly killed by the local villagers. They stoned him to death. Because he still had the for... flags in his stumps. No, no, no. <laughs> they, they stoned him to death for being Taliban. Oh, the, the, so the they villagers, okay. For, they killed him for being, yeah, they killed him for being Taliban. Right. Uh, had, yeah. Um, so I guess that's just practice medicine at that point. You know? I mean, did everything, all those resources and everything was, was by medical rules of engagement. And even then, they knew full well that even if he made it, he wasn't going to make it. There was, what are you, you going to do? So it, the whole thing was an exercise in futility, I guess. Now, with that, so that's what I heard a lot in Iraq and Afghanistan from our men and women that were there very early on. Now, again, as a naive civilian looking in, you can see how the longer you stay in a country, the more like an occupation it begins and the more potential enemies you might create. What did sure. you see over the duration with that relationship when you first got there versus maybe a few years later? It, it really depended on what part of the country you're in. If you're in one of the metropolitan areas like like Bagram, or, well, not Bagram, Bagram's not metropolitan, but uh, Kabul or uh, Mazar-Sharif, or uh, to some extent, Kandahar, then um, the population was a bit divided. And honestly, I think the closer you got to a center of gravity, the more you saw impacts of governance and things like that. Um, and knowing that this was better than Taliban rule. Um, and if you were old enough, knowing it was better than communist rule. Um, but the farther out into the country you got, the less anybody really knew about anything real other than what was affecting their village properly, you know? Um, so, uh, you know, you had, you had Islamic fighters out there, but um, the, the war really only touched the rural areas it didn't touch them by policy. It touched them kinetically. If that makes sense. Um, early, very early on, there were some special forces guys and civil affairs soldiers and psyopers that had to, they had to show villagers why they were there by showing them a video of, of the, the twin towers being hit because they, they just didn't un understand why, why we were there in the first place. Um, and, um, <laughs> it, it's just, it really depended on not only how rural place was, but the level of education of those villagers as well. 
Um, there, there is no one single answer for Afghanistan, and I don't think there ever will be. Well, that's what I hear too, and I think a lot of us don't understand is how how many tribes are there in that one country, and so how you know yeah. you've got all these silos that aren't communicating that maybe are, are fighting with each other, and we're looking at it as one country, which is you know absolutely not what's happening. Yeah, well, you know, this is your fault. My people's fault. Yeah. Yeah, probably most yeah. things are. Yeah, you got a cartographer, <laughs> some dude named Durand that draws an arbitrary line between Pakistan and, and Afghanistan and doesn't pay attention to tribal lines. You have what we have here. Yep. Yeah. I can thank you for Iraq too. Thank you. Oh, I trust yeah. me. I know, I know the British yeah. history, British petroleum needing a port. Yep. So let's, let's unite these three tribal bands into one, one kingdom. We'll install a King in Iraq and we'll be able to export oil through, through Basra and Bob's your uncle, as you say. Well, expand on that more because, I mean, I, I love these, you know, kind of historical teaching moments because, I mean, the UK at one point, I believe, ruled two-thirds of the world, which yeah. as impressive as it is, obviously, a lot of oppression, you know, killing, intimidation occurred for us to do that. You know, you look at India and some of these other places, it was horrific. But, yeah. you know, I think it's important, again, you know, history repeating itself to learn, you know, where where have – certain elements of our forefathers affected what we see now. And Somali pirates are a perfect example. When you look at the overfishing of their their land or their land, their sea, their ocean, you know, and then the poverty created, now all of a sudden you have people turning to crime. I mean that happens in right. places in America all well, the time too. Yeah. And unfortunately it's difficult to teach history now without politicizing it. If you de if you just teach the facts, um which can be difficult when you're t when people start asking why and what people's motivations are. And I think that's where the politization politicization of history comes into play because you're going to have you're going to have it skewed towards victor or underdog at that point. But the things that cannot be argued are when a country became a country, you know, which for Iraq was after the discovery of oil. Uh, with with British Petroleum, um, you know, with with Pakistan, it was it was a Commonwealth and it was part of India until what forty seven, I think, nineteen forty seven, somewhere in there. I don't have Jamie from Joe Rogan back here to fact check me, but it was somewhere in there. And then you had the Durand Line, which from the sprung out of uh, the Afghan uh, Britain War, and um, this all kind of goes into well, you're saying, you know, Britain ruled two thirds of, of the earth. So there were good things that came out of colonization. There were bad things that came out of colonization. But one of the worst things that came out of colonization was the vacuum left by decolonization, which is very, I mean, if people want to see a microcosm of what that is, you can look at what we did in Iraq. Was Saddam a good ruler? No, he was fucking terrible. He was a bad person. <laughs> But he was a ruler and, and he had governance. And we came in there with our capes and said, Saddam's bad. And anybody that worked with Saddam and the Ba'ath Party is bad. And we're taking away that whole government. That leaves a vacuum. And that, then we had all these militias spring up. And now we're playing whack-a-mole with these militias. And they've got backing from our enemies one country over. And so we just had this whole insurgency to fight. Whereas we knew Nazis were bad, but we didn't destroy their government. You know, they still they still had a police force and everything else, and we actually helped Germany rebuild. Why didn't we do that in Iraq? 
and I realize I'm, you know, crossing streams are a little bit because it's really difficult to compare Iraq and Afghanistan. And a lot of civilians do that, uh, not realizing it's, that it is two completely different things, two with two completely different problems. But I think they both stem from colonization, decolonization, and foreign influence of, of nation building. Yeah. Well, it's, it's crazy as well. I mean, when you, I like to reverse engineer to try and get to the root of the problem. And obviously some of those, you know, roots just go on and on and on. But something I talk about this is kind of a good example is slavery. Like there is this, you know, especially this last couple of years, this narrative that all people, all white people, you know, were just making money hand over fist from slavery. And now it's time to take it back. You look, I mean, the British were the ones that actually bought the slaves. They, they sold them to the, or traded them with the US and went home with their hands clean. When you look at the height of slave trading, British people were some of the most, you know, it was the most impoverished time in, in recent times. So they were not benefiting from slavery. I'm sure Joe the farmer in, you know, Idaho was not dreaming of slavery, was not benefiting from slavery. So, so often you can reverse engineer it back to, you know, just greed and, and power lust. And so when we have made you know, bad, you know, our forefathers have, have done things that are bad. We can't just say, all right, you're the enemy now. We have to, I think, be educated of why is there a problem in Iraq? Why is there a problem in Syria or, you know, wherever it is? And what involvement do we have? Where are countries actually selling weapons that are now being used to shoot our soldiers, you know? And I think that's the thing is we get this little, you know, this, this clickbait snapshot of, you know, who's the boogeyman without ever being mm-hmm. educated. Well, you know, this is actually our fault and some of the things that we enjoy now were at the cost of this country. Even if we did have that, would you trust it? Like if, if this history lesson came across and it had some new ideas, that was news, new information to you. I, I know if it came to me, I would scrutinize it highly and I would start looking at other sources where I can find this. And I used to be an intelligence guy. So I know to dual source report things like if it sounds to be credible, it needs to be, it needs to come from more than one source before you action it. That's just, that's a basic rule in intelligence. Um, and I, I try to do that, especially after being duped a couple times by weird websites that were very, look, like very legitimate news sources. The onion. It happens all the time. But if, <laughs> if we got that, if we were able to get that, I mean, who do we trust anymore with, with peddling information? It's, 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 getting harder and harder. Absolutely. I think that's just it. I mean, that's one thing my dad told me, this is years ago now. He's like, if you want to learn something about a subject, don't read one book, read three. And it's yeah. very much now. But if you are being lied to by your politicians, your you know leaders of whatever country you're in, then what does that say about the trust? And I think if you look at some of the, what I would consider the more, you know, the, the healthier, more trusted countries around the world i think scandinavia is always used as a good example usually you know portugal is another great one if the leadership has done good things and gained the trust of the people there isn't this questioning but if you have a country like ours there's so much misinformation even coming from these fucking idiots that end up in the white house over and over again that are tweeting like a fucking five-year-old child then how the hell are you going to trust your information coming through your news sources one news source is clearly representing one political party the other one is the other they're pitting you against you each other by splitting the screen into four and having four more dipshits arguing with each other. And where's the education? Where is this is what I stand for? This is what we're trying to do. This is our four-year plan, as you said. This is how we're going to affect the obesity epidemic, mm-hmm. the suicide epidemic, the 
addiction epidemic. But no, it's, you know, it's, it's absolute white noise clickbait. So people are so confused, so anxious and so triggered. And I use that in the, the way it should be used, like hair triggered that, you know, there, there's, there's no questioning of information. They just have that confirmation bias. They Google the thing that says the thing that they believe in and then right. they run with it. Yeah. Confirmation bias is the enemy of, enemy of critical thought. It really is. If you're not willing to have your own position challenged, then what's the point of having a position? It just, it's weak. It's a weak position. Absolutely. I get challenged on here a lot. You know, I don't seek, you know, people that are just going to tell me I'm wrong the whole time. But, you know, there's many, many times because I'm, I'm a dude sitting in the house in Ocala, Florida, asking awesome people questions about things that they've seen and done. And, you know, every so often it's like, no, you're actually wrong with that thing. And then, you know, they educate me and then I go back it up with some other people and go, ah, okay, I'm going to change the way I think about that thing. Here's so I mentioned earlier that I don't like to bring up problems without solutions. And on this one, I've actually had a solution that's worked fairly well for myself. I don't watch anything that has a 24-hour news cycle. Because I feel like uh, that's a when you have to fill space with news, when you have to fill airtime instead of actual break news, you know, I'm going to pick on Fox News here for a second just because this is distinctly them. There's been a Fox News alert going on for the past 20 years. But why, why is that an alert down at the bottom? Why? Is something on, is it an actual alert or is this meant to draw my eyes? I'm numb to it. But I, I think the death of information started with the inception of the 24-hour news cycle. Because you had to fill this airtime, and in order to keep eyeballs, you've got to keep them engaged. How do you keep engaged? You create panic or you create, create outrage. That keeps people drawn in. Now they're emotionally invested and they've got to be on there. And it's worked, unfortunately. And it's stopped people from having their own critical thought. So I don't watch, I don't, and I realize that uh, some of the success of my company has been based on us being on Fox News. And it's not like, it's not that I hate Fox News, but I don't, I make it a point not to watch anything that's a 24-hour news channel unless I absolutely have to, unless that's my only source. Because I feel like if there's somebody putting out news and they've got a time limit in which to do it, that they're going to prioritize what they're putting out. And they don't have time to give you an emotional, impassioned editorial that they're not going to call an editorial. They've got to give you They've, they've got to give you the, the facts down and dirty, and then it's up to you to explore that further. And that's, that's, that's how I get my, my tidbits daily, usually in the shower. <laughs> <laughs> well, I grew up with the BBC. It's funny. We even had a thing called John Craven's Newsround, which was like the BBC for kids. But what was interesting is you pay TV license. So basically, you pay a tax. So they've got the money. They create news. They create television shows. And, you know, over and you know, Overall, they're really, really good. Then you look at our model here. The whole point of the news is to make sure they can sell the advertising space. So when right. you think of that, it's the same thing as having a pharmaceutical company that's going to make a fortune on pain medication or you know high blood pressure that's meds. Mean. They don't want you to be healthy. You know the whole yeah. point is to keep you sick. 
so unscared and depressed. So, you know, do I think that people were, were plotting these plans to, to make Americans sick? No, but that's where we found ourselves now. So, yeah. you know, if you've got any sort of news station that their whole kind of plan is to make sure you watch the advertising space in the middle, you're going to end up with clickbait. You're not going to end up with real news. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And just to make it fair and balanced, let me pick on CNN here where they're, Everything is COVID, 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 twenty four seven, and it's brought to you by Pfizer. They just straight up said this segment brought to you by Pfizer, and how can people not question that? I'm not, I'm not an anti vaxxer. Uh, I, I honestly don't know what to believe with COVID, as I'm sure most Americans <laughs> are in the same boat. Like, oh, okay, well, what does the CDC flip flop on today? You know, it's and that's a reality. Those are facts. They ha- they have. When you've got a major news network pushing this out and the news is brought to, is paid for the very company that owns the vaccine, I mean, how much more blatant can you get? Exactly. Yep. It's, and you've got terrible. a little ticker, your little counter, how many people are dying just spinning in the corner. No mention mm-hmm. about how many of those were dying anyway because they're morbidly obese and have COPD and all these other yeah. things that are, people are dying from regardless of a virus. But no, the, right. little, the little scareometer in the corner to keep you triggered and scared. Yeah. Yeah. COVID was uh, very real for my family, not because we had it. I mean, I've had it at least once, probably twice. My fiance's had it twice. Um, my mom and my stepdad both had it, but they didn't know they had it because they were asymptomatic. They found out because my mom was undergoing cancer treatment and it was mandatory to get tested every time she went in to get treat- treated and she tested positive and uh, they stopped treating her. Really? Even she was asymptomatic. They stopped treating her. and. Uh, that was the beginning. That was the beginning of the end for her. She passed away in December. So parts of me feel like my mom actually died from COVID. And it didn't have to do with the virus. It had to do with the treatment protocols and bureaucracy that were mandated because of it. Yeah. Well, I'm so sorry for your loss as well. I know we went back and forth when your mom was, you know, battling and that's right. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I've heard that a lot, you know, people that didn't, they were too scared to go get that lump in their breast checked because of mm-hmm. COVID, you know, people that had chest pain didn't call 911 because they were more scared of the virus than the actual emergency that was going on in their body, you know, and so there's, and then you've got obviously the mental health element, which is a huge, huge thing. And huge. A lot of people have put 10 pounds yeah. on on average, and I'm hearing just consistently now more domestic abuse. And you know, in mm-hmm. our professions, we're seeing suicides spike even more in my opinion i mean these responders these frontline workers now are you know now they're finally getting to process what they just did the last 18 months and i think you know there's so much in this the overall mental and physical discussion and now it's like oh gas prices let's talk about that you know so yeah it's heartbreaking i don't know where the end is but i know that uh you know we talked about earlier um you have to get broken you know, you have to get broken to be strong. And I think that's different for everybody, but I think anybody out there, anybody out there listening to this has the ability to build back. I'm not going to say build back better because I think that's just another party's version of make America great again, but they have the power 
to strengthen themselves. Absolutely. That'd be kind of a weird hat, blue hat with BBB on the front. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I just don't see the difference. <laughs> no, me neither. <laughs> so I want to just hit on one thing because I know we're two hours in already, but I really want to get to your transition and, and talk about Black Rifle and all the great things that you guys are doing there. But the other side of that question I asked you before, I think is just as important. Were was there a like a first moment where you witnessed kindness and compassion? You're in this place where where combat's happening, and you know you, you know, more often than not, the regular people are trying to live their lives around you. But was were there any moments of kindness and compassion that really kind of resonated yeah, with you? Absolutely. Um, and this will be in a book that I write eventually. And I'm glad you reminded me because I completely forgot about the story until just now. But uh, um, mine workers. Um, in the winter of 2003, uh, my team was um, on a mission um, in and around Mazar Sharif. Uh, and um, it wasn't very kinetic uh, at the time. There was, um, there was a lot of Alibaba's bandits, you know, there was some lawlessness going on. And uh, most of the firefights that happened were more criminals than terrorists, more, more criminals than Taliban or Al Qaeda. Um, we had, um, we had been invited on a hunting trip with one of the Northern warlords. Um, and, uh, it was night hunting. So we were essentially just spotlighting and, uh, we were, we, we had breakfast with him the next morning and then we left and um, we obviously we didn't break general order one alpha in order to um, to have a build a build a rapport with this local warlord general order one alpha being uh, there's no porn or alcohol involved in, in the theater. So obviously we didn't do that because we we stand by every order that's ever given us. Um, but we didn't feel very good coming back from his house the next morning. And uh, I remember being in the back seat of this Land Rover while my comms guy drove, we didn't have tactical vehicles either. We were driving Land Rovers. Um, one of which you can see on Mike Glover's page cause he inherited them. Oh really? <laughs> one of rotations his uh, later, overland yeah. vehicles. Yeah. It's when Mike first started posting things, we know each other now, but we didn't then. And, uh, and started, he started posting things like, I know exactly where that is. Wait a minute, that's my truck. I know where that is. <laughs> it's, it was funny. Uh, but um, yeah, I was, in a, I was in a white Land Rover and we're driving along and um, it, had, uh, it had just snowed. And off to the left, we're driving down this one, one of the only paved roads in Afghanistan at the time. Um, we're driving back towards Mazar Sharif and uh, off to the left about couldn't have been more than 50 yards off, off the road. There was an overturned Land Rover, uh, with UN markings. It was laying on its side and there was an Afghan man walking around in his, uh, pato and pakol, the blanket and the hat and traditional dress, but he was walking around and he was going like this, which is how you hitchhike. That's, that's the equivalent of this in Afghanistan, but he wasn't doing it near the road. He was kind of wandering like a windup toy. Like if he was a windup toy and somebody just let him go next to this Land Rover. And he's obviously cold and he's hitchhiking, not on the road. It, it wasn't right. 
right? Something about the situation wasn't right. And my comms guy didn't even say anything. He just looked at me in the rearview mirror and I just kind of nodded. <laughs> we pulled over and all I had was a first response. I had like a combat lifesaver bag and a Skedco. There was a Skedco strapped to the front bumper. And um, the his uh, this was a, they were Afghan nationals, but they were part of a UN demining team. So these guys were doing great work because uh, there's a lot of landmines left over from the Soviet invasion and occupation. And uh, man, I've got some stories about that too. But um, they had uh, in, in the weather, they had flipped this Land Rover and it had rolled and gone off the, the side. And we, um, we packaged them up the best we could in the sked and then flipped a bitch and went back the other way because there was an NGO clinic um, run by um, it was staffed by Americans and it was funded by Billy Graham ministries. And uh, there was, uh, there was, I think one doctor and like four nurses that ran this clinic. And um, it was interesting, a Christian ministry in this very Islamic Republic. And this is the early days of the war. So I don't know how long they'd actually been there, but they were doing good work the best they could. And um, our intent was to drop this one guy off uh, and let them treat him. What ended up happening is four more casualties from from MVAs, motor vehicle accidents for listeners, uh, were dropped off. And my team ended up transporting all of those casualties to Mazar Sharif. Um, and that's really where I saw kind of the humanity and people come together for the first time. There was an actual sense of community. Um, my team sergeant, uh, who he's a state police trooper in his off time and just a cowboy and a weapons guy not not a big medic but he he and my other weapons guy <laughs> ended up with brute force taking apart this picnic table so we could have spine boards that's how they built spine boards with boards from this picnic table that was out there and uh we ended up uh and he ended up bribing uh, these these taxi cab drivers, guys that were dropping patients off, uh, he ended up bribing them to stick around and stay in the snow. We paid them through cash from, from our op fund. Um, and uh, so I'm in the back of this this hatchback Toyota Corolla with a casually laying, I can't even remember if it was the same. Yeah, it was. It was the same casually I had from the get-go. And I've got a line started on them and I'm just, you know, doing vitals and basically keeping myself busy, constantly assessing this guy. And he's loaded diagonally. So his, his head was right behind the driver's seat and his feet were right at the hatch. Um, and his partner on his demining partner is crouched. Afghans, they don't really sit. They, they, they crouch or squat and he's crouched in the other corner in the back of this Corolla hatchback. And I'm behind the passenger seat trying to just do medic things with I keep hitting my head in the bag because it's hanging from the the oh shit handle at the the top and I'm I'm in there and I'm constantly assessing I'm doing my thing I'm fighting through this uh what could be called a hangover if we actually did that kind of thing and all of a sudden this this guy crouching in the corner goes just out of blue he just exclaims God bless George Bush <laughs> and I I jumped 
I'm like, I'm back. I'm like, what is going on? And uh, he goes, we will never forget what you did here today. God bless George Bush. I'm like, all right. Yeah. Bless him. (laughs) (laughs) Take a year off my life there. (laughs) Keep working. That uh, That was a memorable experience. But yeah, to answer your question about humanity, community, things like that, it was it was really uh, all these civilians scooping up people that had wrecked on the road and bringing them back to wherever they could to get them some level of care. Beautiful. Well, I think it's so important to hear that side as well. And this this always brings out you know a lot of really amazing stories. And even I think one of the most powerful images I've seen the last few weeks is uh, the Russian protests within Russia. Mm-hmm. Because it's not the boogeyman. It's not all Russians. It's not all Germans. It's right. not all, you know, whatever. It's, you know, certain people in each country that want to seize power. I mean, I, I had uh, someone tell me the other day that some of the Russians in the invasion thought it was a training exercise. Right. Imagine how what a mind fuck that would be. Like, yeah. <laughs> you suddenly figure out, oh, we actually are invading. That's why they're shooting back to us. So, yeah, yeah I mean, that'd be pretty wild. So, you know, I think it's important that we, we, we stop kind of demonizing an entire country, especially, for example, Afghanistan, where, you know, you have all these different tribes and all these members of, you know, these families that are just trying to get on with their lives. Meanwhile, there are, you know, these, these horrible people that are terrorizing them. And that's what we're not getting yeah. the story as well. They're the first, you know, the initial victims. And then obviously you guys are going there and, and helping them and, you know, having to, to fight for your lives at the same time. Yeah, I think in evaluating everything, and this can apply to foreign policy or just anything you see at home. It's a, it's a dangerous trap to project your own experience onto somebody else. But it is important to filter things through your own experience um, because that's where empathy comes from. And uh, without empathy, what do we have? Get straight tribalism and eventually there's always gonna be a bigger fish. You know, empathy is an underrated tool in self-preservation, which sounds like it contradicts itself, but it's true. Well, actually, it doesn't. And I'll tell you why. So it's kind of leads to my transition. I know you're still at the moment, so it's not like a, a hard, fast transition like some members have. But what I've witnessed over and over again is whether it's in the fire service, people, you know, retiring, getting hurt, you know, even getting fired, or whether it's, you know, especially a lot of people from the military that transition out, don't have the ticker tape, you know, the, mm-hmm. there's, there's a, there's a really, it's an easy trap to fall in that first you identify as whatever uniform you're wearing. Right. Then there's a, a, I think sadly, a, a real lack of understanding of childhood trauma, like what happened before we ever put the uniform on. Then you've lost that purpose, you've lost that tribe, and now you find yourself on the other side. And that's where you know, I think that compounding element, that perfect storm, creates a lot of problems in our, you know, our veterans, our firefighters, our law enforcement. So what was that? journey like for you to deciding to not be doing this all the time and then you know talk to me about your journey into black rifle yeah so um i've been around black rifle coffee since its inception i haven't worked for black rifle coffee that that long but i've been around it uh evan and i were in special forces together um i knew uh jt was well he was still in the air force uh matt i didn't know prior to black rifle um but um, I used to write for the blog before it became Coffee or Die. And uh, I was a contractor. I was a, I was a medic instructor. I was, I was teaching TCCC for the government um, at that time. 
and I was a sergeant major in SF, but I wasn't really deploying. Um, I changed, I changed jobs in the military. I became a company sergeant major in special forces and was immediately deployed. Um, and I was deployed with a joint task force. Uh, and they're not real big on having writers <laughs> in, in their key leader positions. So I tendered my temporary resignation from, from Black Rifle um, and uh, ended up doing back-to-back deployments with uh, special operations. And when I came back in 2019, the government had cut my contract, my civilian contract, um, from where I was a medic. So uh, pretty blatantly illegal is, uh, I think, what that's called in court. Um, but the fact remained, I didn't have, I didn't have a job to go back to. And honestly, I, I was missing a lot of time with, with my kid, with my daughter. And I didn't want to, it would have been easy for me to jump back on a contract that took me right back overseas, but I didn't want to do that. Um, I checked that block, you know, back in the day, I felt like if I didn't go, then who, who would? Um, I felt like I needed to, I felt like the taxpayer had invested a lot of money into making me who I was and I needed to give back. Um, but when I came back in 2019, I felt like, uh, all right, I've, I've paid that debt and it's time for me to, to work on me, work on my family, et cetera. So I didn't go back on contract and I wasn't seeking out, uh, deployments, et cetera, so forth. I was just trying to be around and Evan called me up. I had actually been hired. I'd interviewed and been hired to be a, uh, a cop for the federal government. Uh, but I would only work in region 10, which is where Seattle is because they originally wanted to, they hired me, but they wanted to send me to Topeka, Kansas, which completely defeated the purpose. And I think they were really kind of taken aback when I said, I said, all right, what's your first choice? Region 10. What's your second choice? Region 10. And they looked at me. And I said, that's it or nothing like okay (laughs) so i was waiting for my academy date Uh, i didn't get to go right away because i was being such a hard ass about where i was posted i was waiting for my uh my fletzy date and uh evan called me up and asked if i was still going to go do that cop thing (laughs) i said yeah if they ever send me to training and he said well i have some projects to be managed and i'd like you to do it and hopefully you just decide to do this instead and that I came on in November of 2019, and uh, with the exception of a couple breaks to um, to keep Seattle peaceful uh, and to sleep outside my senator's office and things like that, um, it's that's been my my full time job, and it's really the first time I've truly been part time army. I haven't really known this experience before because I've always been out doing something. Now, how has that transition been for you? Because as as we talked about before, you've, you know, you've accumulated quite a lot as yeah. far as the kind of mental Rolodex of trauma. Um, you know, you even have some like kind of multi-generational stuff you talked about with, you know, the, your family's service. Um, you mm-hmm. know, you were in a very, very tight knit group. So that tribe was very, very strong at that point. Was transitioning into a different role still with the same kind of men? healing for you or did you have any elements of struggle there was pluses and minuses and some of them had to do with current events you know i'm i'm finally in a job where 
I'm not jumping on a deployment because it comes up. Um, I'm not going to this cool guy school. If it comes up, I'm trying to be a civilian and uh, current events push back and I ended up being activated three times in 2020, which aside from real title 10 overseas things, I'd never faced a stateside activation ever. And, you know, I originally transitioned into the national guard in 2000. So you know, 20 years. This is a full military career for most people that know when to quit. Um, and all of a sudden, I've, I've had it three times. And it, it, that was, honestly, that was probably the hardest transition. Because at Black Rifle, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to say I don't have an advantage in being army buddies with the CEO, because I do. Um, there's also disadvantages to that. Um, because it's hard for both of us to do separation of church and state sometimes. Um, but the, the fact that the company was founded by soft veterans, um, you know, we, I, I went into the company, I, I went into the company knowing their mindset already. Um, I think it's probably harder for a civilian with coming from the corporate world to integrate into Black Rifle than it is for someone like me to come in and learn the corporate side. Um, and I, and I've, I've seen that and we're 50, we're about 50% veteran employed right now. Um, and it's, man, it is, it is awesome when we can find somebody with corporate experience that also has the military experience, like our, our COO, Toby, she has corporate beverage experience, but she was also an Apache pilot. That's, that's a unicorn right there. I mean, that is, that's great for a company like us. But when you've got somebody else that comes in and they've got experience in the beverage industry from somewhere, but they have, you know, their experience with the military is watching Tropic Thunder. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I love that documentary. <laughs> it's a great documentary. <laughs> I, I feel for those people because they've got to figure out, our company was based off an op order. We didn't have a business plan. We had an operations order. And we, that's how we brief things now. Uh, you know, some of them are better at doing them than others, but <laughs> you come in, you've never seen this thing before. And all of a sudden, instead of looking at the Harvard Business Review, you're looking at the Ranger Handbook to figure out what the third paragraph is, what, what's supposed to go in it. That's a, that's a steep learning curve. And hopefully these people have, you know, some humility in that. I, I feel for them. But the transition for me into Black Rifle was actually pretty pretty easy um easier than i think it would have been for most veterans transitioning to a civilian job now one thing i don't think as many people know obviously black rifle has become an incredible like household name especially in the tactical communities um but and then you know matt and tim kennedy and some of these other guys with the, the commercials and the movies have done an amazing right. job to put it in everyone's ear holes um but the the kind of altruistic element that I touched on earlier. So I know you've worked with OEW. I know actually that you guys jumped in and supported Denise Olson, who lost her husband yep. in 9-11. Um, yeah. So I keep, every time I have amazing humans around me that do amazing things, and you guys always seem to be part of the the support element. That's my dog growling in the background, if anyone heard that. Um, so talk to me about that, because I know you ended up being in that role initially. 
um, I'd love to hear about some of the, the, the good that Black Rifle does. Sure. Yeah. So uh, up until last fall, I was the charitable giving manager and I was also the, the director of uh, the BRCC fund, um, which is our in-house nonprofit. Um, there was nobody that had either of those roles before me. So there was a lot of uh, figuring it out on the go, which is interesting um, because you have to individually vet every, anybody that's asking for support. And on the corporate side, you've got to look at what these, what these organizations are doing on the outside, not just their um, 990 forms or IRS form that it's their financial declaration, but you also have to look at who they're supporting on the outside and whatnot. And I've had to pull support from people before because I knew that even if the specific initiative that I was trying to support even if that was uh, right in line with our values, something else that they are doing is going to create a PR nightmare for the company. So there was, it, it was interesting. I mean, the values of giving back, that's always been there. Gavin has done that even when he didn't have a corporate manager or even the money to, even a budget for it. He's always done it. Uh, but he's never capitalized on it. Um, but the checks and balances, as we talked about earlier, you know, this is more than checks. There's balances there as well. And you've got to vet these people, especially when there's some bad actors in the nonprofit world. The nonprofit world is a mess. And let me just stand in my soapbox for a minute and say, if you're getting out, if you've had some kind of experience that makes you feel like giving back, you're going to have this grandiose notion of starting a nonprofit. Don't do it. There are plenty of nonprofits out there. I Sure, I guarantee you one of them has your exact mission that you want to support. Go help that nonprofit. Don't start your own. Unless you really have a good reason to. It's, it's, it, trying to manage nonprofit takes away from actually doing the work that you went into doing, what you were trying to do that motivated you to start a nonprofit in the first place. It does. Well, it seems that's why the altruistic business model works so well. You know, like if, if, cause I have that a lot of people in the fire service, oh, I'm going to start a mental health nonprofit. And it's like, well, is there anything that you love doing, love making, you know, service you can offer, a, a product you can make, and then just take 10% of what you make and it will always go to whatever, like Tom Socks. Yeah. I think it was Tom Shoes, excuse me, is a, is a good example of that. Right. Yeah. And that way you can still, you know, have a regular business, but intrinsically, use some of your profits to then help. And then that way you can supplement your favorite nonprofit. There is a incorporation option out there, an incorporation model um, called social purpose corporation. That name varies a little bit in verbiage state by state, but I know, I think in Delaware, you know, the Caymans of the United States, uh, it's actually called a social purpose corporation. And uh, it, it is set up for companies that have that, a little bit of altruistic mission, but still need to be uh, entrenched in capitalism, <laughs> which I'm a firm believer in. So it's a good thing. I know all this because I had one briefly, uh, very briefly, <clears throat> before I went full-time for the government in medicine. So um, with the corporate giving, um, we went from, we had, a, I fell in on an existing budget of 400000 and um I overspent by about 350000 that year. Fortunately, it was a good year for Black Rifle, so uh, nobody was mad about that. 
Um, we split that between um, cash donations, um, supporting um, nonprofits, and um, in-kind donations. So, giving, sending, we sent a lot of coffee overseas uh, my first year um, to Iraq and Afghanistan, Horn of Africa, all over Asia, anywhere where there was U.S. troops. We we sent coffee. Um, and there's a couple annual campaigns called Buy a Bag, Give a Bag, where I would pair up with uh, nonprofits like Soldiers Angels, um, and they would find the recipients, and we'd ship literally pallets of coffee to, to different units and places. And we're still doing that, even with deployments winding down. Now we're also supporting uh, VA hospitals and, and things like that. Um, last year, Evan uh, said, we're going to start a nonprofit. And a bunch of the C-Staff said, please, no, let's not start a nonprofit. And Evan said, we're starting a nonprofit. So the C-Staff said, we're starting a nonprofit. I said, Tier, you're going to run this nonprofit. I said, okay, I'm running this nonprofit. <laughs> and uh, uh, with the help of legal and our e-com team and, uh, and some subject matter experts, we, we got this thing off the ground. We got our EIN for the BRCC fund the day before our very first event, the day before. I knew that event was going to happen regardless, I just, and we were going to raise money. I just wasn't quite sure until the night before who we were raising money for. Caleb and, and Lopez and Troy and those guys were on the ground, so I'd already decided that if we didn't have our – I don't think they knew this, but if we didn't have our EIN in time, I was going to raise money for OEW Archery. That's just who the fundraiser was going to be for. So it was going to be a win-win regardless. <laughs> it was a lot of building, uh, building a rocket ship while we were flying to space. It's, uh, it, was, it was challenging. And um, I stepped out of that role uh, to, uh, to do more content and marketing um, last fall. And Jay Fain, uh, one, of our, one of our personalities, uh, came on full-time, and he's the director of the BRCC Fund right now. And... Um, there's, there's growing pains because we're a publicly traded company now. So a lot more oversight. There's, there's no more figuring things out on the fly. Can't do it. So a lot more checks and balances, a lot more oversight, uh, self audits. If you don't self audit, you're going to get burned when somebody else audits you. So we've split the, the BRCC fund and the corporate giving. Um, and we're still figuring out some of that structure, but uh, the budget is much bigger than it was. Right. And I know you support uh -oh. um, first responders communities as well. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. When we, in fact, we have two coffee roasts. You know, we've got Five Alarm, uh, which I've got about 80 bags out here that I'm going to go hand deliver here uh, shortly. And uh, we've got our Thin Blue Line roast. And um, those, uh, those are meant to support more, I don't know, as a statement than anything else. Um, first responders, the police and fire. And we have coffee saves that we send to a lot of hospitals too, which the Red Cross made us redesign the bag on. Oh, really? What's the story behind yeah. that? Well, uh, we didn't, we didn't know that, um, you know, the, the standard, the Red Cross that's on everybody's aid bags, everything else. Uh, the Red, International Red Cross has a international trademark on that and they spend a fair amount of time enforcing that. And I'm not mad at them for this at all because it, keeps people from pretending to be the international red cross. And I think that neutrality is important with what they do, but it was ironic that their lawyers called to cease and desist, uh, the same week that I had made a sizable donation 
to the International Red Cross. <laughs> <laughs> Completely unrelated, but it was it was there was a little bit of irony there. <laughs> I can imagine. That's crazy. <laughs> so we just redesigned the bag and you know we still have the, the coffee saves roast. It, it's just tweaked a little bit. Beautiful. Well, that's like I said, I wanted to pull that out. I mean, you know, you guys are not only known as far as sending coffee, but now I think I was driving back from, it's amazing actually, I went to North Carolina to interview Major James Capers, Jim Capers, one of the original Marine Recon guys in Vietnam. And on the way down back from there, I saw Black Rifle Coffee on one of the exits. I was like, wow, this is incredible. But I think the the lesser known element is all the good that you do. And this is something that I you know, all the companies that I kind of align with, some of the sponsors I have on here, there, there's a thousand places to get coffee, but you know, here's one that's actually doing incredible things with it. So I think that the altruistic social business side of what you guys do needs to be heard by more people because otherwise I've just got to Starbucks. Agree. <laughs> I agree. And so does a PR firm that uh, we ended up hiring. <laughs> oh, really? They, Excellent. they had no idea that we were doing all this work and they actually were talking to Evan like, why don't you why don't you capitalize this? Well, that's not why we're doing it. Like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. That's the problem though, is like when you're a humble person, you know, you're not the guy, hey, here's me giving a homeless guy five bucks while I film myself. You just give right. a homeless person five dollars. Yeah. And anytime, you know, we've we had an initiative, uh, I honestly don't know if we're doing it right now or not, but um the the nascent year of the BRCC fund, the the one goal we had was to give $5,000 a week to a veteran-owned businesses, uh, a veteran-owned business, um, with priority going to those that um, were had been particularly struck by COVID. We were kind of inspired by the Barstool Fund on that. But we went straight with veteran businesses. And uh, I was, every time we did one of these check presentations, I, I wanted them to get a picture with this big novelty check. And I, you know, I said, we can do this wherever you'd like. This is not for Black Rifle. This is because we have a large following. And if we get you and your business on here with your thousand followers, we can amplify your business. So we can, if you don't want to do a check presentation, we're fine with that. We don't have to, but this is for everything we're doing here is for your business. And, the, you know, those checks rarely, those pictures rarely made it on our main page, but the BRCC fund had their own. It's because we didn't want to exploit the same reason. We do limited media coverage on our adaptive athlete shoot. We do one thing that highlights the experiences of those veterans, um, but it's not like a big overblown BRCC commercial or anything. It's a completely different flavor with a completely different mission. And that's to, that's to uplift the uplift those people, whoever it is we're trying to help. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate you, you know, telling your own story, but also giving an insight into that. Cause like I said, it needs to be heard. And, you know, you guys have great coffee and you listen to interviews with Evan. Clearly he's, <laughs> you know, he's not just doing coffee because it's something to sell. I mean, that he sounds like he's pretty obsessed with it. But, uh, yeah, I mean, we need to hear the people that are doing good things. We need to hear the, the companies that are doing good things so that we can band together and support those, you know, and, and, you know, if you're, for example, buying your coffee, whether you know or not, then, you know, that's one kind of degree of separation from doing something good in the world. So I think it's important yeah. that people hear it. Well, if somebody's hearing that for the first time and they're curious what the coffee tastes like, they can use Smadge 15 for 15% off their first order of anything. I would make it a big order because you can only use that discount code once. <laughs> <laughs> 
Brilliant. Well, we've been chatting for two and a half hours and I thank you so much for, for, you know, staying with me for so long. I'd love to just throw some closing questions at you before I let you go, if that's all right. Send it. Beautiful. Okay. The first one I love to ask people, is there a book or other books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Um, it's a little bit aged now, but one of my favorite books of, uh, kind of militarized foreign policy is uh, Imperial Grunts by Robert Kaplan. Um, and uh, actually my battalion commander is quoted. He wrote part of that book during my first tour in Afghanistan and was there. Um, so uh, I didn't get to meet him. Some other guys on my team did. So that was a good one. Um, uh, Max Boot is another great author. Uh, he has several books. Um but my favorite one by him so far is called the savage wars of peace. And, uh, that talks about, it's a great insight to the history of low intensity conflict, particularly as it applies to the United States in our, in our brief history in the broad, broad band of time. Um, it's, it's just incredible, incredible book. Uh, and then, uh, on the non, uh, decision-making side, um, the things they carried is uh, is one of the shortest, hardest reads I've ever had. And I think uh, even if you have never served in the military, uh, I'd recommend that one to first responders as well, because it deals a lot with uh, with resiliency and, and coming back and, and dealing with the things you've seen. Beautiful. Yeah, I've got that. I'm actually, I think Tim O'Brien's writing a new book at the moment, but I'm kind of like in a holding pattern. So hopefully when that starts coming out, I'll, I'll be able to get him on the show because absolutely. I mean, as we talked about our Rolodex, yours is very different to mine. Yours is in a military yeah. setting, you know, overseas. Mine is a, a domestic setting here, but yeah, I mean, there's absolutely. Well, let me throw one carry. out for the domestic setting. And I, I don't remember the author's name. I read this on my last trip to Afghanistan, actually, <laughs> but uh, a thousand naked strangers. It's a, it's about a, uh, it's about a paramedic. It's, and it's, it's just kind of his journey from nothing to EMT to to medic and everything that he saw as a as a medic in Atlanta, which, as you can imagine, is quite a bit. <laughs> it's Brilliant. a great book, though. I'll have to yeah. look it up. Perfect. Thank you. All right. Well, then um, the next question, is there a movie and or documentary that you love? Restrepo. Speaking of Sebastian, amazing film. Yeah. Uh, I was a ROTC instructor for um, a, a few years at University of Washington and cadet command. I was very spicy at the time because when I started teaching there, I'm sure my cadets who are now captains uh, can attest to this. Um, it was kind of scary at the time. I hadn't since graduating the Q course in spring of 2004, I hadn't been home longer than three months consecutive. I'd always been somewhere else and I'd uh, had a lot of, been shot at quite a bit and looked over my shoulder a lot. Um, and when I got back, I took that assignment as an ROTC instructor to try to reset myself and save my family, um, which was unfortunately too late for, but most of that was me, not them. Uh, I was, I was pretty angry at random civilians because I didn't feel like they had earned all the, liberties they had around them. I just felt like they were walking around a bit oblivious. 
And I kind of applied at Cadet Command as well because the not everybody I taught with, the enlisted guys I taught with were all combat vets. The officers I taught with, it was a mix. Some of them had, some of them hadn't. And um, we had one class, um, a warrior ethos that was dictated in the, in the curriculum from Cadet Command. And um, because I was a salty combat vet, I got put in charge of teaching that. But one, of, one part of that block of instruction was showing a movie. And the prescribed movie from Cadet Command was, uh, was some football movie. I can't even remember the name of it. It's a good movie. It's a great movie, actually. Uh, but I, I just, I was so angry that this is 2010. We've been in multiple conflicts for multiple years, and we're showing a football movie to teach warrior ethos. I was, I was, I was verbally, I, I, I was pissed off about it. So uh, I took it upon myself to show Restrepo instead. And what I didn't know is that I actually had a couple of 173rd veterans in my classes that were just hiding. They were just, they weren't touting themselves as veterans. They were just trying to blend in. And uh, <clears throat> the, um, having them kind of come out of hiding. Um, and it wasn't just them. There was a couple of Marine vets as well that came out of the, kind of came out of the shadows and introduced themselves to me after not only showing Restrepo, but the worry those class that I, made up and gave uh they they came up and were able to talk i mean one of them said i actually thought you were super cocky at first but this is a great class thank you for <laughs> <laughs> thank you Master Sergeant. <laughs> for strepo is a, a great film it is indeed I, I had um sebastian on i think three times now so it's been amazing hearing his different perspectives but i had um tyler carroll from dead reckoning collective on yeah. as well so and he yep. ended up not being deployed at Restrepo, but he was in Italy when those men came back. So he kind of got this really unique lens that Sebastian mm -hmm. touched, touched on. I think it was um, Korongal was the second one that they revisited. Yep. Um, yeah. But yeah, so you have him, you know, embedded, and then you have Tyler, you know, who then ultimately becomes a firefighter. So you start painting a picture again. This, like I said, this naive civilian can really start understanding at least parts of what these men and women do when they're overseas. Yeah. Yeah, I really like Tyler a lot. He and Keith have done a lot to uh, put a boot in my ass and, and actually put a pen to paper where I find myself having 50 things, other things to do that don't take as much effort. Yes, writing is hard. Yeah. I wrote a book, like yeah. I said. Actually, I need to send you the book, but uh, I'm trying to write a second one now, which will be a fiction. And yeah, I've all I've done is read Stephen King's book about writing so far. It's a great <laughs> actually book. <done> it. <laughs> it's a great book. It's wonderful. All right. Well, speaking of great reading, people, uh, I'm sorry, please. Oh, I was just saying right now I'm reading in very just little bite-sized tidbits. I'm reading a Chuck Palahniuk's book on, on writing. I can't even remember what it's called, but there's so much information in there. It, it, it reads completely different than Stephen King. Stephen King's book reads almost like a, a memoir. Yes, very much. And, so. and then you realize he's teaching you to write through his memoir. Yes. Yeah. And he's Chuck's book is like, is basically telling you don't be a writer, but if you do, do this is how to right do here. it but i was given one by actually a fellow uh, green beret jason casper who, who ended up writing yeah. fiction um and it's called story and apparently that actually gives you the building blocks to start assembling this crazy idea that you have into an actual fictional you know work i think it comes from a screenplay background actually mm. I'll write that one down 
Yeah, it's a good book. But yeah, on writing is hilarious. I literally, you know, they people say LOL. I, I LOL'd all over the place reading Stephen King's book. So he'd be another person to get on. So we're speaking of that. So the next question, is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Yeah, my fiance. Tell me more. Um, so we met because of 9-11. We didn't meet on 9-11, but we met because of it. Um, she was in Manhattan the day the, the towers were, were hit. And, uh, her mindset then, uh, she was a club kid, worked in the music industry, uh, was an art school dropout. Um, her mindset then was completely different than it is now. And uh, watching, just talking to her about experience, and that, that transition from naivety and, and sheltered to xenophobic to resilient and a very strong and independent woman now is pretty amazing beautiful yeah i'd love to let's make it happen okay brilliant oh, actually that reminds me i think it was tyler his grandmother was a fighter helicopter pilot um if i've got that right i think she was a helicopter okay. helicopter or or an actual um aircraft pilot. but she was what era was she was him as his grandmother so i think it was like korean type era but yeah so i've got to revisit him because I was like, that sounds like the perfect person that should come on the show. Like, how many? I've got another black rifle person for you. Uh, my friend Morgan Mason was—he uh, downplays his his veteran experience quite a bit because he was an intel weenie. But uh, he did that, uh, and he'll be the first to tell you I was just a reservist. But he's a reservist that went to war, so it doesn't matter. Um, but he's done that, and he's done firefighting, and then you know transitioned into media and nonprofit work. Brilliant. That's why I yeah, love these questions. Interesting story. Yeah, I'd love to get him on as well then. So yeah, we'll make both of those work. Thank you so much. All right. Well, the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you, what do you do to decompress? Uh, I beat my wife and drink a lot. Oh, good. <laughs> so like most of our <laughs> standard, community. <laughs> standard stuff, you know. Um, well, sometimes I need to be reminded to decompress. Uh, I, I would like to say I'm self-aware enough to know every time and sometimes even when I do know, I'm just so stubborn about fighting through it that uh, I don't. And that's, I'm, I'm sure that's a reality for a lot of people um, with my, with my skill set. But um, decom- it's actually how, that's why I started writing. I, I was bubbling over and I didn't know what to do about it. And I just started writing. And I think it, I don't remember if that started pen to paper or if it started thumb to Instagram post because my early writing is all Instagram posts. Um, but that's, that's where that, that's where that happened. And uh, I was at a point in my life where I really had little concern about any kind of feedback whatsoever, which gave me that freedom of, you know, Hemingway's right drunk at, at sober or his other advice of right for you. Um, and, uh, I wouldn't give that advice to anybody. Write for you. Don't worry about what other people think about it. You don't have to worry about publishing it. Just write. Write something down. And that really helped me. And how it helped me is that I didn't know. I knew something was on my mind. I knew something was wrong, but I didn't know what it was. And once I started to put words on paper, it started coming out of me. And sometimes the first paragraph would have nothing to do with the second paragraph, but it, it started. 
it started and it was the only thing there was a few times the only thing that shut it off was the time constraint i had to get to work or you know break was over whatever but um i would say that that is that's really what broke the ground for me in in coming back brilliant well just before i ask the very last question of where we can find you online you talked about you were charlie now you're tear so what's that yeah. transition so uh i i was i was in special operations and um I had social media um my first facebook page was uh conan the deployer and then facebook changed their rules to where you had to have a first and last name so i changed my name to thor mcgriddle which is kind of a play on my my history my first name is norse i'm named after the viking god of war and uh i've got a bunch of irish blood in me my mom's maiden name is mahoney um now there's a bunch of people going to open up credit cards in my name but it's all right i guess uh, <laughs> and your social was what? Uh, yeah right so thor mcgriddle was just kind of a play on that um and then i think a disgruntled ex-girlfriend uh, reported me to the Facebook police for having a fake name. So I decided, well, that's fine. I'm spending too much time on Facebook anyway. I'm just gonna, I just won't have Facebook. And I realized within a week that that was the only way that my son and I communicated because he was in Portland and I was in Virginia. So I needed a Facebook page to have Facebook Messenger. So um, I, I had, I like reading history. Uh, there wasn't a lot of thought that went into this, but I was like, all right, I'll be Charlie Martel, which is an American shortening of Charles the Hammer Martel, Charlemagne's grandfather who beat back a, a caliphate in Spain way back in the day, uh, uh, facing overwhelming odds. So I became Charlie Martel. And when I started writing for uh, the Black Rifle Coffee blog, I needed a pen name because I was still a cool guy in the government. So Charlie Martel became my gnome de plume or gnome de guerre or some combination thereof. And, uh, when I came back and started transitioning more into, I wouldn't say the spotlight, but the light in general, um, it really confused people at black rifle because people that there were a lot of people that only knew me as Charlie. <laughs> and when this guy tears showed up, they were like, who is, who is this? <laughs> So even on my Slack, I had to have both names on there for for about a year before people figured out that Charlie was Tear. Now, what, what's the uh, the root of Tear? It's a very unusual name. Yeah, it's Norse. So um, everybody's heard of Thor and Odin, thanks to Marvel uh, and Loki. Uh, Tear is right in there in that in that peer group. Uh, Tear and Thor are brothers. Uh, Tear is another son of Odin, and he's the god of war and justice and bravery. And uh, uh, at one point has his right hand bitten off by the Fenris wolf, which is, uh, I have a depiction of it. <laughs> yeah. do, do they put a Norwegian flag in the stump after? Yeah, just, yeah. <laughs> Damn you. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty funny. Uh, I hated my name growing up. Uh, it was kind of like a, you know, a boy named Sue. Because having your first name tear, oh, cry, baby, you're gonna cry about it. I hated it. I told my mom I wanted to change my name to Daniel at one point. 
but I'm glad I have it now. It's nice and unique. Yes, it is. When <clears throat> Tier Simac is, uh, anytime there's a pause, like any kind of reading of a roster or uh, calling people whose name is on a list somewhere, when there's that uncomfortable pause, I just walk, I just start walking to the front. <laughs> <laughs> what about Simac? What's the, the, Simac is a, uh, it's a, it's, it's um, an ethnic group called Wint. It's a Slavic minority of uh, Eastern Germany. Um, my grandfather's family came over in uh, the big German immigration to Texas in the late 1800s, sponsored by the Methodist Church. Most of them ended up in Central Texas. Uh, the only thing that was in Crawford, Texas, prior to the Bush Ranch, was my family region, and and like. A tiny store. That's it. <laughs> wow. And the fact, I think portions of the Crawford or the Bush Ranch used to belong to members of my family at some point. Oh, really? You should take it yeah. back. Have an insurrection. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, it's been an amazing conversation for people that are interested, whether it's your writing, whether it's following you on social media, where are the best places online to find you? I'm most active on Instagram. Uh, under Red Leader standing by. Um, there's a bunch of Nigerian accounts out there that have me blocked, so I can't tell you which ones are which to avoid. But uh, I I only do a couple, I would say a three to four hard posts a month. Um, but my stories are, are very active and I'm, I try to answer all my DMs so people can typically get a hold of me there. Um, that automatically post to facebook which i habitually forget to open uh so if you message me on facebook messenger i'll probably get back to you in a couple of weeks when i remember that it's there <laughs> um and i hate linkedin it's, i can't get into it i guess if i needed a job i'd, I'd probably love it but i don't need a job so I, i'm never if you message me on linkedin you, you're gonna wait a while <laughs> <laughs> Well, Tia, I just want to say thank you. Actually, before I do, um, what about if people want to learn more about the nonprofit side of Black Rifle or even contribute to the nonprofit? Yeah, so the BRCC Fund has its own website. It's brccfund.org. Um, and they have their own email addresses now as well. Uh, Jay Fain is the executive director, and uh, he can be found on Instagram under Jay Limp because he has one leg. Um, <laughs> um, or j.fane at, oh shoot, it was Black Rifle Cop. I think it's brccfund.org now. But anyway, the, the website has, the fund has its own website, brccfund.org, and there's a donate button there. And I imagine it's updated with what they're currently doing. Brilliant. Well, again, like I said, I want to say thank you so much. It's been such an incredible uh, conversation. We talked about doing it chronologically. I told you we'd spit out tangents left, right, and center, and we have. And we've been yeah. chatting for three hours, which is one of my longer ones for quite Holy a while. Cow. But yeah. uh, I, I truly appreciate you you know, being so generous with your time and telling your story and then also enlightening us on some of the amazing things that Black Rifle does. Because as I said before, I think the companies that are out there doing good need to be highlighted and you're always already a very successful company but i think the altruists of the world would be endeared by what we've heard today well just my story's only half over so we can do this again anytime you want